Welcome to the very first Renegade Detroit Investor Podcast. My name is Jeremy Burgess, and I'll be your host. For those of you who've never attended a Renegade Detroit Investor meeting, Renegade Detroit Investors was founded in 2008, and it's like ARIA, but it's a little different. It's uh, no sales from the front, um, local experts only, and a heavy emphasis on deal flow and on uh, a heavy emphasis on, on deal flow and networking. I've been a professional real estate investor since 2006. I moved to Detroit with my wife in May of 2007, and uh, my career has been a cautionary tale. But anyway, I digress. Renegade Detroit Investors, uh, we used to have a meeting, and we had a local investor expert come to the meeting, and this is the first podcast where we're actually separating the local expert from the physical meeting and put it on the interwebs, the internets, for the entire world to listen and participate. Um, go ahead and follow us. Go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Uh, that's where we post all of our meetings. If you want to network, if you got a deal you're trying to trying to sell, whatever, you can post it there. You can also go to renegadedetroit.com. And for the Twitter folks, go ahead and give me a follow at Jeremy Burgess. And now, of course, the legal disclaimer. Today, these are just the opinions of myself, the host, and uh, of the guest. They are just opinions. This is not legal advice. In no way could this be construed as legal advice. And before you do anything, we highly recommend you go and hire a legal professional of your own choosing before you do anything. The quote of the show today from Ann Rand. Most people would rather die than change. Something for you to think about as we move on with the inaugural podcast. And for the inaugural podcast, I'm happy that we have an excellent speaker and a friend, Mr. Alan Daniels, who I'm going to introduce right now without further ado. Dr. Daniels and Sons is one of the largest purchasers of land contracts in Michigan. The Daniels family has been purchasing land contracts and private seller-held notes and mortgages for three generations. Alan Daniels has been licensed in Michigan real estate since 1988 and specializes in buying land contracts and real estate. He also offers private money, business purpose, real estate loans. Read, you can't live there. Or sign that you live there. Or pretend that you live there or anything like that. Professional landlords and real estate investors only. Yes, yes. Uh, none of that 2007, 2008 crap. In Michigan, Allen served as president of the Michigan Mortgage Brokers Association, forever referred to as MMBA in 2000. For his achievements, Allen earned the MMBA 2000 Distinguished Leadership Award and was named, named the MMBA Broker of the Year. For 2001, 2, and 3, Alan was the first recipient, recipient of the MMA or MMBA Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004. In addition to his work within Michigan, Alan previously served in the National Association of Mortgage Brokers as a member of the Board of Directors, Delegate Council, Government Affairs, Bylaws, and Best Lending Practices Committees. Alan also served as an officer on the NA. MB Executive Committee as Treasurer 
and also as a regional vice chair of the NAMB Legislative Committee for the Midwest Region. Currently, Allen serves as chairman of State of Michigan Morgan Industry Advisory Board that makes recommendations to the director of the Department of Insurance and Financial Services. The state agency, commies, they regulate mortgages and land contracts. Allen also serves on the Board of Governors and the Michigan Mortgage Lenders Association, the Public Policy Committee for the Michigan Realtors, and both the Conventional Financing and Public Policy Coordinating Committees of the National Association of Realtors. This is still going. This guy knows his shit, right? <laughs> Alan is an approved real estate and mortgage continuing education instructor. He has frequently testified as an industry expert before committees of the Michigan State and House of Representatives and has been published in numerous mortgage and real estate trade journals and media outlets, including the Washington Times, Bloomberg, NPR, Michigan Radio, and the Wall Street Journal. Allen is a lifelong resident of Bloomfield Township, where he resides with his wife, Kelly, his son, Michael, and daughter, Leah. Leah. Leah, yeah. thank you. Allen is a graduate of the University of Michigan Hail. in Ann Arbor. <laughs> no Spartans here. Um, and he has come to Renegade Detroit Investors several times. He gave... Um, and I will put the link under too because we will get to it. I know the question will come up. Okay. God, Frank. Um, I actually recorded that, and that will be in the show notes when we get there. And then I got a literally a salad of letters behind his name, professional memberships, education. Uh, suffice to say, he probably knows more than any human really should <laughs> about real estate, lending, mortgages, private or commercial. Um, Anyway, welcome. Thank you for coming to the first uh, RDI podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, you and I first met uh, on Facebook, uh, I remember. I was going to bring that up. Okay, well, you can do it. But <laughs> Let I, me do I, it. Okay, fair enough. But uh, no, and, and uh, it, it, uh, what I do want to do is thank you. We met on Facebook, and then uh, Jeremy will tell the specifics of that story. But uh, then um, he found out that maybe I know a little bit and asked me to come and speak. And um, it was the first time I'd done a presentation like that in, in quite some time uh, since before the PowerPoint days. Uh, I think we used an overhead projector way back when. And um, it ended up that I, I, I sort of enjoyed doing it and, and turned that presentation and some others into things that we presented to the state of Michigan and got approved uh, as real estate continuing education. So um, while it's nothing I can retire off of, I wanted to thank you for getting me on the speaking circuit <laughs> and, uh, and uh, taking away time from my livelihood. No, okay. I did record that. I will put that okay. in the show notes. Okay, so one of us is making money from yes. it. Yes. Yeah, well, okay. not money, no, but uh, getting you, get yeah. you some views. So okay. we've all done this, right? You know, they say you only get one chance at a first impression. Well, the internet's not always the best place for that. I um, he had recently stumbled upon the Renegade Detroit Investor page on Facebook, and I had posted some link or article about land contracts, seller financing. And at the time, this was 2009, early 2010, um, I was working with a company, and we did a fair number of homeowner land contracts. And Alan left an excellent point um, saying, hey, be careful, there's some rules, something like this. He cited some rules. And what did I do? Because I was on the Internet and I was annoyed that day. I left a shitty comment. I was like, 
Well, I don't know. I might answer that question. Uh, how many land contracts have you done? Well, I, think, I still didn't catch it. I think Kelly Britton, Brittingham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kelly Brittingham got on there. It's like, I think he may know a thing or two about land contracts. And I was like, as soon as she said it, I was like, oh, crap. So I got on the internet. I Googled it. Of course, bam, website comes right up. And I see blog posts after blog posts. I start counting years. And all I have to say, people, is it's never too late to apologize. I immediately apologized um, for making such a shitty remark. And then from there, I was like, hey, you brought up some good points. You should come to the Renegade Detroit Investor Meeting. So that's how that's how we met. So I guess the point I'd like to make is it's uh, if you're wrong, too, or you make an ass out of yourself, it's never too late to correct that because uh, people might remember. But that's actually how we met with a shitty Internet comment. And, uh, you're very gracious to let me apologize and back my way out of that. So. <laughs> well, it, it's, uh, you know, I mean, we've all done that sometime where you say something and, you know, you're being a smart aleck or, or whichever, and then you realize, uh, you know, maybe I'd like to buy that DeLorean with a flux capacitor and go back to yesterday and start yeah, over. Yeah, that's how I felt. Yeah. I was like, oh, of all the people I could have done that yeah. with. Oh, man. But you turned a lemon into lemonade. I did, so, as quickly uh, as I possibly yeah, could, yeah, too, yeah. which is yeah. good because I wouldn't have a career if I didn't, uh, <laughs> if I didn't do that with the mistakes I made, so... Uh, but anyway, I read that long, long list and, and all that, and for everybody. So, Alan buys notes. Um, I'm sure that's not all you do, and he's also a business lender. And how many years now? Well, I started uh, in '88. I had graduated from U of M in '88 uh, with a BA in communication, and uh, I thought I was going to uh, be an account executive uh, with a technology company at the time, AT and T. Uh, they split up the government split up the bell system and AT&T was going to be a big computer competitor with IBM and they flew me to Chicago and Minneapolis where I had to go through their assessments to see whether uh, it was suitable for me and I passed that supposedly with flying colors I got a call from them that they would be hiring me as an account executive sales and marketing uh, as soon as their hiring freeze was over so uh, those of you that have been in the corporate world sort of know where this is going probably. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm 23 years old, just graduated from college. And, uh, you know, so what do I do? Well, I, um, you know, I got my real estate license. I got my insurance license because I was pretty good at taking classes and passing tests. Um, and uh, my dad, like a lot of doctors and de dentists, had dabbled in real estate through the years. And uh, his father before him, who was an engineer, I uh, moonlighted in, in, in a uh, real estate office and because he was good with figures, did amortizations before computers existed. So they knew about uh, buying old school right there. They knew about buying contracts and buying notes. And so um, what I did to sort of pass the time and, and uh, pay for groceries while I was waiting for AT&T to call back is I would go to the county, uh, research people that had sold property on land contract. And there were a lot of them coming out of the 70s and 80s. Uh, and then with the white pages, which wasn't an app, it was a book, uh, you know, call them up. Uh, there was no do not call list to worry about as far as compliance. And um, I, I was able to put a couple of deals together that summer. And uh, so that's sort of how I got started myself in, in buying paper. And I forgot what your original question was now. No, so, no that's good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like this. So how yeah. many years have you been doing this? Well, so that was 1988. And wow. um, so then I came on full-time with my dad uh, in January of 89. 
Um, and I think I got a raise in 1990, and uh, that was the year we applied to the state to get our mortgage license, which we got in 90. And um, so unlike a lot of doctor, I'm sorry, a lot of father-son uh, businesses that don't last the first week, my dad and I have been uh, working together for, what, 27 years. That's a long time. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that. But, okay. So this is a worldwide Internet's podcast. So land contracts, um, not everybody knows what that is. It's certainly a Midwest thing. Can you tell the audience what is, because they could be listening all over the world, Europe, Australia, China, (laughs) even the West Coast. They have no idea what what a land contract is. Can you explain what a land contract is? Well, the the easiest way to explain it is as a contract for deed. Um, In a a more conventional situation, um, a buyer would pay a seller for a property they're buying with a bag of money. Now, you know, whether that's from their savings account, they give that bag of money to the seller, get the deed, they're done, the seller's out of it, or they start a new relationship with the lender, they gave them that bag of money, and then they start paying the lender back to fill up the lender's bag of money. But the seller, in in both those examples, the seller's pretty much done once they sell the property. Now, with a land contract, or if you think this contract for deed, uh, the buyer and the seller enter into a contract where uh, the seller says, I agree to take maybe $50,000. Uh, the buyer says, I'll give you 10000 of that down, and then I'll pay you 500 a month until uh, you know I fully paid you. And there's usually an interest component as well. And then when it's fully paid, the seller would give the deed to that buyer. So if you think of, you know, land contract, contract for deed um, as essentially synonyms, you know, then you'll, it might be easier to understand the concept. And um, hopefully, you know, did we lose anybody on that or? No, no, that's, <laughs> okay. that's good. It's contract okay. for deed in the West. Yeah. Um, so seller financing. So if you're in, it basically not in America, it would be like if you decide to sell your car, um, but they didn't have all the money. So instead of giving you $5,000 for the car, they would make 500 bucks a month payment and maybe ended up being $7,500 for the car over a certain number of years. Only apply that to real estate. So Yeah, essentially the seller is financing the sale of the property themselves. Now, there's a lot of... Um, you know, uh, twists and, and certainly regulations with it. Uh, obviously, if the seller still owes money on the property they're selling, uh, you know, th- you've got to make sure that that's, uh, you know, paid off or that they're not violating the terms of that contract uh, by selling it. Um, so there, you know, there's more than just the basics to know, but we've got to start with a foundation. And, uh, you know, when I was, uh, you know, starting out in 1988, I, Barely understood what they were myself, but uh, now I've got a pretty good handle on it, but I still learn something new every day. Well, now you also don't just buy land contracts, you buy notes and real estate and lots of other things, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, you were joking as far as how to define a land contract, and you might want to call it an endangered species now. It's not quite extinct, but um, because um, of a of number of reasons, one is the increased regulation. Another is uh, just the market in, in economics. Um, when it w- when anyone with a pulse could get a mortgage, uh, there weren't a lot of people that were buying on land contract at that time. Um, but coming out of the the Carter years, when uh, interest rates were nineteen and twenty, 
and it was very difficult for people to get mortgages. There were a lot of land contracts that were originated in those days, in the 70s, early 80s. And, um, you know, that, and I came in the business in 88, so there was still a lot going on. And in Michigan, it's part of our culture. There's been uh, generations of land contracts and Many people, you know, know what they are. In fact, many people will even use it as a, a verb. I land contracted my house to these people. Actually, I've read several journals, um, even Abraham Lincoln. And I read everything they found that he's written, and even he mentioned land contracts and the literature back then. It actually looks like that's how land and the Midwest has been bought and sold and financed for dozens of generations and at least a couple hundred years probably longer it seems to have a steep just a real deep history here um i'm originally from out west and i've traveled the world and seller financing is not a common thing and nobody knows what it is out here but even the layman in detroit riding his bicycle or walking on the street knows what a land contract is it's synonymous it's part of the culture here and i'm going to come back to the endangered species part okay um, at a later date. But so when you and your father, actually your father started, and then he kind of pulled you in. Um, it was a good time for, for land contracts because, as you mentioned, what the late 70s and early 80s were not friendly to the Midwest in general, but particularly anywhere along the Rust Belt and with interest rates. Could you just explain two or three minutes, something like that, what it was like then, what the lending environment was like, what the real estate environment was like? Sure. Well, let me start. My dad's a, a dentist. He's retired now. He sold his practice. And um, he, um, you know, like a lot of uh, businessmen and women that have, uh, I guess, persevered and survived, um, there were different things he did over the years. And um, he dabbled in real estate. And um, in, in some cases, real estate was good. And then real estate wasn't so good during, uh, you know, certain times. And, and But dentistry might have been better. And, uh, you know, so he uh, went through those ebbs and flows and feast and famine. And but uh, particularly during the the uh, I guess the Rust Belt years when, um, you know, you had, uh, you know, economic problems and uh, unemployment and uh, sky high interest rates. Uh, I was in high school and, and starting college, um, you know, even middle school, I guess, in the 70s. Um, I just turned 50 this year for everyone to know. <laughs> but in any event, um, in, you know, real estate, we, what we didn't have was depression of prices like we had in the last uh, recession. But prices had never really upticked that high. There wasn't aggressive appreciation in the 70s. Um, but what happened is the interest rate, the prime rate was 19 or 20. So if you think of, you know, people might not have had jobs. Uh, and if they did, the amount of income that would be required and what the payment would be where interest rates used to be four or five or six, and then they went up to 19, just the idea of qualifying at that rate was difficult. Now, the positive thing is that many people that owed on their houses had mortgages that were assumable, so they could sell on land contract without triggering a due on sale clause. This might have just gone from a 100 class to a 400 level class. But in any event, um, so many people would sell their house on a land contract. Maybe they owed uh, 25000 and then they'd sell it for thirty nine nine with 5000 down. Uh, they'd be receiving a payment of four fifty a month, and their payment on their underlying mortgage was two fifty a month. So it allowed them to move on with that down payment. They could, you know, maybe move, move to Texas where the jobs were, um, but it it allowed uh, people, 
you know, to move on. And it was really the only way people could sell their houses in those days because they, the buyers couldn't qualify for those high rate mortgages. Okay. So, so let's talk about real quick before we move on. So were all the mortgages back then assumable or were or most of them assumable? And, and then please explain what an assumable mortgage okay. is, because that is a dinosaur now in yeah. 2015. Yeah, well, prior to 1986, there were a, a number of mortgages that were uh, assumable. What an assumable mortgage is, is, uh, you know, tip, let's say you borrow money from the bank to buy a house, and it's, you know, typically a 15 or 30 year mortgage. Well, in modern day mortgages, there's a clause in there. It used to be known as paragraph 17, but it's moved to 18 in some of the mortgages. And uh, I'm not sure what number it is right now. But uh, but basically, in the modern day mortgages, there's a clause in there that says if you convey the property to someone else, in other words, transfer the ownership uh, by any means, uh, that that mortgage is due in full at that time. And the reason is um, it's because of the predicament that happened in the 70s and late 80s where banks had loaned money for long term, maybe at four, five, six percent, but yet they because of market conditions, they were giving depositors 14 and 15 percent on savings account. It's sort of unheard of now. And it was a recipe for disaster for the banking system. So uh, banks started writing mortgages with due on sale clauses, and there were some lawsuits. I've actually brought some paperwork on there in case the questioning went there. But uh, at the end result, the Supreme Court ruled that these due on sale clauses uh, are valid. And, um, you know, there might be some gurus out there teaching ways to get around it. Trust, but. Um, yeah, yeah, but, um, you know, most of the research I've done on it, and I've done a lot, um, mo- some of it is an expert witness, uh, or preparation for being an expert witness uh, against some of these guys, um, are that they're, re- they're really not on solid ground, because there's an element of um, of concealment. And um, and then also, you can sort of look at it as the, the golden rule. I was reading one article where, you know, let's say if you lent someone uh, your car, you lend it to that person to give it back to you. And it wasn't under the condition that they could then loan it to someone else to use. Um, you know, so, I Absolutely. mean, there's some basic, yeah. you know, good faith agreement. If you sign something saying, if you sell, you know, if you give that car to someone else or give that house to someone else, they get paid back. Um, you know, you should abide by that. So some of it, you know, other other people may teach things that, you um, I, I think the lesson from this is, you know, like you said at the beginning, talk to your lawyer before you start doing something. Always. So just mid to late 70s and early 80s, economy sucks. Interest rates are sky high. Bank has all this money out at 4 or 5%. And now they got to give interest rates 14 15%. And new loans are going out. High teens, low 20s. Do you remember what the highest was? I, I think, you know, 19 or 20 is the biggest I remember hearing about. Now, you have to keep in mind, I graduated high school in 83, and things started to get better shortly thereafter. So I w- it wasn't like I was shopping for a mortgage then. But I do remember the headlines, and, you know, and I, I remember, um, you know, watching the news and, and things like that. But I, I wasn't, you know, following things as closely as I do now. Well, no, you were, you were yeah. a kid. Reagan yeah. basically became a Keynesian and dumped a bunch of money and lowered the interest rate on the market, right? But you, your father, and then you, adroitly, um, 
figured out that everybody had to to get rid of these houses and to move to where the opportunity was. Many of them sold on land contracts and astutely and indirectly, you and your father said, hey, you would probably rather have a bag of cash instead of this trickle of monthly payments. And so at that point, Dr. Daniels and son was born. Is that, is that basically how it went? Or? Well, um, it, it goes back a little further than that because the idea of buying notes and buying contracts uh, probably, I haven't done the exact research that you have, but probably is as old as Lincoln as well, is that there were, you know, when contracts were, um, you know, created and, you know, between buyers, sellers and buyers in those days, there were probably times where sellers, uh, for whatever reason, you know, decided that uh, they, they would rather have cash at some point. There were some sellers that were totally happy getting the monthly payments, but others, if they had their druthers, would rather have cash. So, um, you know, the idea of buying contracts is a, a rather old one. And uh, as far as going back in our family, uh, I mentioned my grandfather, who I never met. Uh, he died my dad's last year of dental school, shortly before my dad graduated. But uh, he was an engineer and real good with figures, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, in the Depression of, you know, in the 30s, uh, to help make ends meet, uh, he moonlighted at a local real estate office in Detroit on the weekends and evenings. And in those days, um, many times, let's say an individual sold their house on land contract. Well, if they're working in a factory or, you know, on a streetcar or whatever they did, uh, elevator operator, blacksmith, what, you know, <laughs> um, they didn't have a lot of time and then maybe they didn't have the education to, you know, to do the, the figuring as far as what people owed. So generally, the local real estate brokers would service the land contracts. The, the buyers would make their payments and maybe the real estate agent would charge 50 cents out of a $90 payment or 50, whatever a monthly payment was back then. That was a long time. And, yeah, but that was probably a lot of money. You know. um, but in any event, but then my, my grandfather uh, you know, would, would do the amortizations and, and help the real estate broker keep track. And being an engineer, that wasn't hard work. And because there weren't, you know, apps or HP calculators, uh, a lot of the uh, land contracts, I think, were 5% in those days. I think that was the usury limit in Michigan. Then it went up to 7 and then 11. Um, but you could figure pretty easily what 6% was. Because, you know, it's half a percent a month. You know, you'd figure 1% a month and then half it. So there were shortcuts that, you know, engineers would do in their head. And then so you knew what 6% was and you could figure what 1% was. So you'd take the 6 and then subtract the 1 and then you knew what the interest was. And it was a lot easier, you know, that, that way you could get through more work in a day. So my dad, being a kid, yeah, he was born in, in, um, in the mid-30s, um, 34, and, uh, you know, so he would hear his father talking about this. And then I think when his father, you know, built, you know, got a little bit of savings, he bought a contract. Um, and, you know, so my dad listened. And then when my dad became a dentist and, you know, was able to save up, probably first he bought a car, but, you know, and, but he started investing, um, you know, buying contracts. He also did some land development. Um, which essentially stopped. Nobody was buying or building new houses in the Carter years either. Um, but, you know, like I said, I mean, my dad, um, you know, probably, you know, very astute businessman and would have been, a, was a success in, in a lot of different things, but primarily was a dentist. 
And he just, well, see, that for anybody listening who has children, too, um, you should talk about real estate in front of your kids, obviously, three generations. If you're wondering, I would highly recommend that because uh, they listen, apparently. They're yeah. paying attention. Well, and I knew that I probably in fifth grade, I think it was, when we dissected some animal in science class, uh, that I wasn't going to be suited to be a dentist because I ended up horizontal on the floor. Uh, you know, the first time I saw any, any blood and I'm me. like, okay, you know, so it's, it turned out and my dad and I never talked about uh, working together and you uh, used the word uh, pulled me in and, but he, he certainly didn't push me in. And I don't know if there was any conscious effort. Um, but if there's a lesson there, it, you know, I guess for, you know, I, I just sort of observed and he was always a good role model to me or for me. And, um, you know, and then as I learned more about real estate, learn, you know, talk to him more as an adult, um, you know, I found that uh, the, especially since AT&T has never called back to tell me their hiring freeze has been lifted. Maybe it uh, hasn't. Yeah, so I know. Hired yeah. I, they should give me a discount on my cell phone at least because I was going to work for them. You hear that, you know, AT&T? Yeah. Um, in, in any event, um, you know, I remember a conversation like it was yesterday with my dad because I, you know, I got my real estate license and I put, you know, that one or two deals together that summer from cold calling people. And I remember I had like a little T-chart like you read about, the pros and the cons. And I, I had said to my dad, I said, in, in an ideal situation, um, I would have an opportunity to learn a lot and uh, potentially earn a lot. I like the rhyme there. And I said, but most importantly, would have someone uh, that would be, you know, like my supervisor or mentor, but that would have my own development in mind rather than using me as a stepping stone for his own career. And I said, I know it sounds corny, but that would be with you, Dad. And that was um, December of 88. And then, uh, you know, at the end of that conversation, he says, I guess we'll put you on the payroll starting in January. And, um, you know, so it's, um, you know, like I said, a lot of fathers and sons don't last the first week. We've been fortunate. And then um, after a couple of years, he started spending the winter in Florida, and I took that as a real compliment. Of course, he was just a phone call and a fax machine. I'm dating myself uh, away, but um, you know, it's it's really worked well between the two of us. He jokes that it's the old form of social security, um, where <laughs> where I do all the work and he gets all the money. So that's right. you know, so it works for. So if you have kids, that's, yeah. that's something to <laughs> yeah. think about. Kids too. do the work; the dad gets all the money. So yeah. well, so that summer you put a couple deals together while you're waiting in limbo. Fortunately, AT&T never called you back. Yeah. Um, do you remember your first deal? Yeah, I do. Um, it, it was um, a, a vacant lot that uh, a couple living in Birmingham had sold. The, the lot was on a canal off of Walnut Lake in West Bloomfield Township. And I learned a ton of, you know, about real estate from that one deal. Um, I called, 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 the, called, called the people and um I didn't find this out until after it was at the closing when I had the guts to ask them why they said yes or whatever. And um, they said, um, we normally hang up on people calling or I don't even know if they called it telemarketing in those days. But uh, they said there was something genuine about me. And I said, well, what was that? They said, well, when we asked you a question, you just said, I don't know. Let me ask my dad and call you back. And I said, well, I probably couldn't think of anything else to say other than the truth. He said, well, that was the key. It was the truth. And, um, you know, so 
Uh, that was one big thing I learned. The other was that the way this lot was situated, um, of course, my dad didn't want to just say, okay, you put a deal together, here's a check, you know, go buy it. We had some, I learned about due diligence. And it was a vacant lot um, that did not, it did not have enough frontage to be buildable under the most recent ordinance. However, there, there, it was, it turned out being built to be buildable because uh, the lot was created um, when the ordinance, the current ordinance, it preexisted it. It's grandfathered. It's what oh, I'm trying to say. Okay. And you so, that out well, so, period. yeah. So, so did, you know, I mean, obviously the buyer that bought it from them, of course, we were just buying the paper, you know, we're, in other words, this couple that I talked to, uh, had sold the lot to an end buyer that was going to build his canal friend home someday. They decided rather than, uh, collecting monthly payments from him and then waiting till he got a construction loan to pay off. They'd rather have this bag of money we were talking about. So they said yes. And uh, so we shook hands on a number. And uh, and then I had to make sure that, you know, the lot was worth it. And then also that if this person that bought it from them that would now be making payments to us, if they didn't pay, would I be left with a worth, worthless uh, lot that could only be sold to one of the two neighbors for extra yard? Or was it truly a building site? Did it have mass market appeal? So how did I find this out? Well, I, I you know, talked to some real estate professionals in the area. And then I also had to talk to the township. And West, it was in West Bloomfield. Their township hall at the time was the old township hall on Orchard Lake Road, which is now the, the museum because uh, they built a new complex, which is, you know, huge. But this was like this little, like, picture one-room schoolhouse. So it was pretty cramped. <laughs> and I went in and talked to them, and they said, well, to, you know, I, I you know, what can we do for you? They didn't say sunny, but that's what I felt like. Uh, and, um, y- you know, I, I said, well, I'm here for this reason. And, I you know, I was hoping that, uh, you know, you could provide me with a letter saying that this lot is buildable. And, um, you know, they said, well, you'll have to show us first and then, you know, we'll decide whether we can write a letter. So I said, what do I have to show you? Well, you have to show me that uh, the lot was not owned by any of the, it did not have a common ownership with any of the adjacent lots since the ordinance change. In other words, you can't create a non-conforming lot but if it pre-existed, if it was truly grandfathered and had a distinct ownership chain through the years, then it would meet the criteria for still being buildable. So I went down to Oakland County, and this is where I learned even more. And because this uh, chain of title was so old, I had to go down in the basement. Now, security, you may not be able to go there anymore, but they might send someone down. So I learned about all these restrictive covenants that, you know, aren't they're not constitutional, but of course, they're on these old deeds. And, you know, um, and I learned while I was waiting, you know, that summer, I also took my 40 hour class. So I learned about this stuff, but here I am seeing it. So anyway, I, you know, I pay the dollar copy and I've got this stack of documents. I drive back to the old township hall, bring it to this guy. And he says, okay, well, you've got uh, the chain of title for this property, for the one to the left and the one to the right. But we also need, you know, the, on the front and back. And I said, well, there's a canal and there's a road. And they said, well, technically, 
you know, you own to the middle of the canal or the person would into the middle of the street. And we need to know that it wasn't split from there. I said, well, that seems sort of odd because, I mean, you know, why would they split there? It would always be split. Well, you know, so I learned about government yeah. and, you know, I, you know, it, there's common sense versus, you know, and of course this person, he doesn't want to put a letter on letterhead without checking it out because he could lose his job. So I learned a little bit about, or a lot about empathy too, because I'm trying to figure out why he's doing this. And it's not just to be, you know, mean, although my first reaction is, look, common sense, come on. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, there, you know, if he's ever questioned, he's got to show that he did this. Now, he may also have been, you know, seeing how long I would persevere and maybe it would be one less thing to do if I never came back. But anyway, I knew where to go. I went back to the county, got those. And then sure enough, um, they wrote sort of a cryptic letter eventually, but it said you're, you're non-conforming, illegal, I mean, you know, <laughs> lot, uh, you know, provided, you know, you can show, and I think it, there was sewer system there, but provided you can show, you know, access to potable water and uh, waste disposal system, which was pretty easy because he had city water and, and sewer, uh, would, um, upon approval by our building department, be eligible for a building permit. I mean, you know, I would have preferred, yes, your lot's buildable, but, you know, we had people that, you know, read better than 24 year No, I think I was still only 23, um, you know, interpret that. We felt we were on solid ground. So I really, you know, from that first deal, I learned so much that it's really uh, can be somewhat complicated, but also, you know, you're spending or investing your own money. I mean, even though it was my dad writing the check um, and we're talking about maybe a $30,000 deal, um, it's hard to believe a canal front lock. That's what, yeah, you know, <laughs> but, but, worth a little bit more now. yeah, but, but meanwhile, um, I, I learned so much from that. Um, and you know, but you're investing your family money. I don't want to let my dad down. I don't want to let, you know, my boss down, who's the same person want to, you know, learn, do a good job. And also I'm, I'm getting paid based on my, you know, or at least keeping my job, <laughs> you know, uh, based on, doing a good job. And, and I sort of liked it. I didn't really mind going to the county. I was interested in reading that. And um, it doesn't seem like work uh, when you're interested in it. And then, you know, obviously getting paid is nice. And it seems, you know, it was most of it's been fun over the years. Okay. Do you, do you happen to remember some of the numbers about that deal? Um, I think if I remember correctly, they, uh, you know, they might have sold the the property for 55000 with 10 down, uh, original balance of 45000 I think it was paid down to about forty, And um, I don't know, I think we offered them, you know, somewhere around thirty-five for the forty. I mean, it wasn't a huge discount, um, but the contract was, you know, due to pay off within a, you know, a couple of years. And, but we felt that the property had gone up in value since they bought it. So it was a safe investment. Um, I do remember the contract was written at 10 or 11% because in those days, that's about what they all were written at. I remember the fellow's name that bought it. Uh, he was uh, uh, a builder, but this he was going to build his own house on. And I remember that uh, he ended up missing a couple of payments and, or it was the balloon payment. And we, um, we ended up giving him an extension. And, you know, I, so I remember, 
you know, a lot of details about that one. It's okay. Like, do you just, if you don't mind, do you remember what the yield was after you got the discount? Well, I, I think, you know, just sort of doing it quickly in my head, it was probably, you know, in the mid teens. Um, you know, if you figure you're taking a, a coupon rate of 10 or 11 and you're discounting a little bit, you know, even not knowing how many years were left, you know, it would, it would give you, you know, something like that. I mean, it wasn't like we were doubling our money or anything, but, um, you know, it, it was, we felt the main thing we've always looked at, a, a, you know, ahead of yield is the safety of the money we're investing. It, what happens if we don't get question. the, yeah, okay. What do you think the property was worth and what were you and your father in at? Well, the key to this was if it was buildable, because if we couldn't ascertain that it was uh, buildable, then, you know, the, really the only value was the neighbor to the right and the neighbor to the left, the guy across the street or the guy on the other side of the canal, they wouldn't really want it. So in that case, you know, it, it, it didn't have much value at all. But a building site on a canal on Walnut Lake, um, I mean, even though, it, what do they recall, it sold for 55 with 10 down, it was probably seasoned a couple of years and things were going up in the late 80s. The economy was decent. Um, you know, so it was probably, I mean, we might've thought it was minimum, you know, 70 or something at that time, but we also, you know, you have to factor in, it's not like if the guy misses a payment, you know, you, you, you know, you, you get the property back and you sell it with no cost the next day. I mean, if, if, if the person didn't pay us, we have to, you know, have an attorney go through a process or pay the attorney, Wait, you know, to write a letter. There's no free lunch? There's no free lunch. There's no free lunch. Yeah. I'm so disappointed. Yeah. And then even though I had a real estate license, I mean, I, you know, really didn't know the first thing about selling lots. And even today we still retain, you know, we'll hire an expert, uh, you know, real estate broker in a particular area because they've got the connections of other brokers and buyers that want to buy that. So, you know, yes, we pay commissions. I enjoy paying commissions to licensed brokers because that means the deal's closing. Yeah. yeah. So you you had a piece of property you thought that what did you determine was buildable? It was probably worth sixty to seventy, and you guys were in at thirty. Yeah, we were in in you know 35. probably tw- between thirty and thirty five, and and, and uh, Dean's yield, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it so was that's almost half. Yeah, and getting a mid-teens. Yeah, so it, if you it, wonder, people are wondering why I don't like. Wait, this is not as sexy as flipping or wholesaling. First of all, this is 1988. Um, second of all, you're talking about your own personal money, and I think you said it best, where you're more concerned about the security of the money you're investing over the yield. Right. And for those for those who are listening, if you invest. $100,000 and then make a bad mistake and lose $50,000 to make that money up, you now have to get a 100% return. Try and go find a 100% return. You just lost years uh, for your investment. So this is a very different way than I'm sure a lot of the gurus or whatever you've been watching on the internet, whatever books you've been reading. But if you're wondering what the appeal to this is, it's uh, if you do it correctly... It's a very safe way, comparatively speaking. There's no safety. Consult a lawyer. Um, one of the more conservative ways to invest your money in real estate. Yeah. The the, the thing to keep in the back of your mind also is that it's not truly passive. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, going on the Internet and buying a stock online and then, you know, what it, of course, you know, you might not get the same yield, but... I mean, my dad was paying me, you know, I don't know, $9 an hour or something at that time. 
but also, you know, there were a lot of uh, hang-ups and, you know, re- rejection, uh, you know, to find. I mean, there was one or two deals over a three-month summer. That's um, going to be my next question. Know, so, How many calls did you have to make, sir, to get those two deals? Oh, I, I would, I mean, I, I mean, I, more than a hundred, I'd say. I mean, I was probably. I mean, you know, I don't know if how many I'd make in a day because sometimes you just get exasperated and you need to go for a walk, uh, <laughs> or you're spending time going to look at a property or something like that. And I was also, you know, that first summer I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So, you know, I was also looking, interviewing other places and waiting for AT and T to call again or Rainbow. being. You this know, this is before the internet. So when you're going and doing all this stuff, you got to get in your car, you got to drive to the county building, yeah, got to walk in, open. Box. Boxes, exactly. Yeah. No, I remember going out to Macomb and, um, you know, before M59 was widened, you know, it would take quite a while to get out there. But um, they had, you know, we, we thought there might be some little less competition out there. Um, and, you know, so I think I ended up, uh, they called it East Detroit at the time, but I think my second deal, um, I, I don't remember that one quite as well, but that was uh, a contract in, in East Detroit. And uh, the reason I don't remember that one real well is I wasn't there for the closing. I had uh, actually, um, for about three months in 1988, I worked for New York Life. And I learned a good lesson there is that um, my my peers who had just graduated college uh, were more interested in going to happy hour than they were in talking financial planning and annuities and, you know, life insurance. And then my dad's um, peers and contacts you know, saw me as, as a kid. So even though I, you know, I could call maybe other dentists or, you know, people that my dad knew through the years, it, it I ran out of friends, relatives, and contacts uh, very quickly. I might be better at, if I want to go into life insurance now <laughs> as yeah. an older person, but um, I, you know, so there, there was a little interlude. Um, I did, you know, try something and, um, you know, I learned some things there about needs analysis selling and versus hard selling. And uh, I still use, you know, those lessons to this day, but um, it wasn't a good fit for a 23, 24 year old. So this is, I've made probably tens of thousands of calls at this point. So yeah. I'm curious about this. Anybody's ever made this many calls? Um Probably curious too. Do you remember what you said when you were doing these cold calls? You still have the script in your head. Oh boy, I'd have to go back into the cobwebs here. To, you know, I can. You know, I can hear the old mechanical hard drive. You yeah. know, if it was solid state, it'd be better. Lay some smooth Daniels. Yeah. Well, I think it, it it wasn't very smooth at all. And you know, based on you know what that initial seller said, I think that's what might have worked. Is the authenticity is that I didn't sound like the people that were rehearsed, but I. I, you know, what I can recall is, you know, I did make some notes and I said, uh, my name's Alan Daniels. My dad, Dr. Daniels, is a dentist here in Pontiac, which is where we were as an investment for himself. My dad buys land contracts and um, through public record, uh, and I might even say in the phone book, uh, I'm calling you to see, you know, if you'd rather have cash than, you know, receiving the, the monthly payments. Would you rather have a big old bag of cash instead <laughs> so of that slow Yeah, I might, I, might, yeah I might have learned to say lump sum or you try yeah. different things or, or cash now. Um, you know, like but you I... turn that small little... Yeah, drips and drips. Pickup truck of cash. Yeah. 
Um, but you know, so, you know, and sometimes people would say, you know, that the person already paid off or, you know, the data wasn't that good too, because, you know, that usually the address on the contract was of a house that they had sold and you didn't necessarily know where they moved. Um, you know, so there were a lot of wrong numbers, you know, busy signals or you're leaving messages, uh, and they were answering machines, not voicemail in those days. But, you know, and you don't even know if you got the right person. And again, today, I don't want anybody to think they can go out and do this because um, the telemarketing sales uh, laws, you know, would, you know, you'd have to have a list and scrub that list with the do not call list because there's like, you know, I don't know if it's 5,000 a day or whatever the fines are. So that would not be my business plan, uh, you know, today. And we don't we don't actually do any telemarketing today. But, um, you know, I did learn a lot from it, and I guess that would be, if I had a script, you know, that's what I can recall of it. That's that's old school right there. So you basically spent the first summer just making all these cold calls, driving around, going through dusty records yeah. and all that, trying to piece together. Yeah, and it's funny, we had a little classified ad, too, and, and we still uh, do a little bit of uh, newspaper advertising, which is uh, archaic, but, um, but my dad got the easy ones. He would get the he would get the calls in, and I did the call out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, you know, he made you know he made the rules. What know? better way to learn, though, right? Yeah, throw you right in the fire. Well, it was funny too because um, you know the dental office um, was still active at the time, so uh, I was in a little like a you know de- had a desk, and there was a little partition, but um, you know you people could hear me, and the there was a woman that had worked for my dad for a long time and she was processing like insurance claims on, you know, and she told my dad one time she had my, you know, my pitch better. She had it memorized. You know? <laughs> she said, so it was funny, you know, but I, I think she actually went up because, you know, this is someone, you know, when I was four years old and would come in and ride the dental chairs. I mean, can you imagine your kid, you know, let's say you got a thousand dollar piece of equipment and I'm using it as a toy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my dad never said anything, but, um, you know, now I'm looking at you. Really let us do that, but Good um, but uh, yeah, must be or <laughs> or he probably thought they were pretty durable or a good warranty. Uh, but you know, again, you know, the woman that worked for my dad for a long, long time, she'd seen me, you know, maybe as a four or five year old, and now I'm, you know, 23 working. So she, you know, I think uh, she probably was, you know, giving my dad uh, her her grade or assessment. Ah, okay. You know, so the fact that I would survive another week was always a good sign. That is, uh, yeah. I- I remember when I started, it is very difficult. It's easy to get down. You don't know what you're doing. In your case, you had someone who'd been doing it for a while and someone you trusted your father, but it was still difficult probably, right? That first year was probably, was that the hardest or? Yeah, I I think, you know, you, you, you never really get, in, in this profession, you never really get 100% confident because there's always something else that, you know, you don't know or, you know, that could go wrong. Um, but I think in the beginning, um, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know. Um, I remember, you know, still not really knowing myself what the difference between discount and yield was. Oh, and, yeah. you know, and, and I, you know, I, you know, so each each time, you know, it was, you know, okay, I got someone that sounds interested. Okay, well, what do I do next? Well, how about you ask them what the terms of the contract? Oh, that's a good idea. I'll call back. You know, <laughs> you, know, I mean, you, know you know, I mean, so this was I've really, this I've was really that. baby steps. Yeah. Okay, okay, here's the terms. Okay, well, let's figure out, do they know what's owing now? Well, they didn't tell me. Okay, well, let's do this. Let's run an amortization. You know, so my dad and I would do that, you know, so you think about, 
you know, the patients required from him. And I remember we had a dot matrix printer. And, you know, I, you know, I would print it out and I put it in the file. Well, of course, you've got this extra half inch holes on each side, you know, and, you know, my, I'd watch my dad and he'd tear them off. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a good idea. They fit in the folder now. And also, you know, while I'm not, I, I still have things to learn about organizational uh, Diane is in our, our bookkeeper is in the other room, and she would uh, give an amen to that. So, but but meanwhile, I learned. You know, I, I mean, obviously, if you're in medical or dental, you want to have you know organized records. So it was just a mental note. Okay, even the simple things as far as tearing off, you know, the the holes. I mean, neatness counts. You know, yeah, so so you try to um, you know you know little things. And I hadn't thought about that in years until you brought it up. But it, it was really baby steps and, um, you know, what's this and asking a lot of questions. And um, I really, you know, grow, I learned to appreciate my dad, um, you know, exponentially more than I did as a kid because I didn't really understand, um, you know, what went behind supporting a family. I mean, I was a kid, you know, there, I was fortunate enough to have, you know, there, there was dinner you know, um, and roof I, over I head. yeah, I had a roof over my head and, you know, my dad would go to work early and stay late because there were patients and then Saturdays they were open, you know, so there were little league games that, you know, maybe he didn't come to and, you know, and then, you know, so it was really eye opening and it's like, oh, well now I really learn, you know, why, I mean, this is really everything that went behind, um, you know, making sure that we did have a roof over our head. And, you know, I, I was single at the time and, um, my wife and I were dating, we met in college, but, um, you know, I did figure out, you know, someday I'd be married and have a family and it's like, okay, you know, this is really someone not just business wise to emulate, but there's really a lot of things I can learn. And, um, you know, it's, it's been a great, ride over the years and um you know my dad and i you know still go out and look at property together and um you know really cherish all those times together next time you're doing that for just do me a favor and i don't know if you think about it, take a picture of you and your dad okay. not doing that and maybe i don't know consider posting it to facebook okay or, i just think that's so cool but so i i realized i got so interested in talking let's let's back up a little bit here um let's just make up a deal and walk through it, and let's walk through the terminology. Um, I know a lot of people listening probably know this, but what I'm afraid is there might be people in Europe or China. They don't. They don't. They don't know. We're talking about yields, amortizations, okay, um, all this stuff, and how to how to ana- analyze a deal. So let's just make up a deal, and let's let's just analyze it. So, um. Uh, Boy, you're probably better at this than I do. You want to make up a deal? It's, um... Um, yeah, I wish it was this easy to just make up a deal. But a deal, the, the to... first thing we do to make up a deal is we stare at the phone and see if it rings. If yeah. anybody's going to call, <laughs> you look at in. look at your email inbox oh. and see if you get any of those well, uh, well, a Weber or something. <laughs> some sort of, somebody fills out a. Well, phone. I don't have to completely uh, make up a deal. Okay. I can throw some one of a deal. Okay. Out. I was actually going to call you about this. Okay. So I won't mention address. Okay. Or anything like that. But there's a property in Taylor with a seller. Um, he sold on a land contract and. It's probably the property is probably worth about thirty to thirty-five thousand at a as a wholesale rate. Okay. Right? So it's forty-five to fifty-five retail, thirty to thirty-five thousand wholesale. If it's in perfect okay. condition, 
And he sold on a land contract, and the guy, I don't have necessarily all the terms, we could maybe make okay. them up, but the guy still owes seven or 8000 left okay. and has been missing payments and not making payments. On the underlying mortgage? Okay. On the underlying Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this old man, he had his rental for a long time and then didn't want to sell it because he didn't want to take, he'd been depreciating it, and he sold it for cash, he was going to have a huge tax Issue, so he decided to sell on installment payments on okay. contract. Did he sell it to another landlord or he sold it to a homeowner? He sold it to a homeowner. Okay. And he probably didn't know what he was doing. He's an old man. He's like 81, like a Marine. Okay. You go to his, I went to his house on accident because I put in the wrong address and it's got like an American flag in the yard, the Marine flag, and his lawn's perfect and his house perfect, his garage perfect, his car is perfect. Uh, but he's also ancient. Um, anyway, it was like the, the, the uh, the land contract. The guy who took the land contract out with him owes like seven or eight thousand left on this. Okay, so he's when did he sell? Uh, he sold the co- house on contract when? Do you remember? Five to seven years ago. Okay, so so prior to the Safe Act and prior to Dodd Frank. I hope so. Yeah. Okay, it sounds like it. Otherwise, he has some toilet paper, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's just <laughs> there's you know we talked about due diligence you know on my first deal i mean you know we i knew about usury and you know we saw what interest rate it was written at but and but you know now the degree of due diligence as far as compliance is exponentially um you know more stringent i guess would be and I'm not cumbersome gonna let you, i'm not going to let you go before we talk yeah about it, so okay so this one you know so we so, do you remember what he sold it for 7 8 years ago um I think he said thirty thousand. Okay, and then it's paid down to to like seven now. Seven or eight. He couldn't. Seven exactly to eight remember. is what's owing. Yeah. Okay, and this person that's buying it from him is paying him how much? Do you know the monthly uh, payment? Five hundred bucks a month, I believe. Okay, that's principal and interest, and he pays his own taxes. Yes. Or? Okay. Yes. And then, do you know the interest rate? Uh, he couldn't remember. Okay. He couldn't remember. Okay. So we can make that up if you'd like. Well, why don't you make, for the purpose of this podcast, rather than us wait for uh, yeah, email yeah. to come in with a copy of the contract. Let's we'll, say 10%. 10%. That okay. seems reasonable for a land contract, right? Yeah, we, we still see some at that. Um, we've seen most of them be lower than that over the past number of years because mortgage interest rates are lower. Are lower Usually yeah. you still see land contract rates higher than mortgages, um, but you don't we don't necessarily see them, you know, at, at the top end anymore. Um but seven eight thousand five hundred a month. Um and did he give you an idea of what he wanted for it? He said he would take what was left of what was owed. Okay, he so he wants it. to sell it for the face amount. Yes. Now has he talked to the buyer about just the buyer getting a loan and paying them off? Yes, that's apparently been the promise for like the last year and a half, two years. He's been dragging it out and then it's like every fourth or fifth month like a five hundred dollar payment comes in. And he said if it was five years ago he just would have started the paperwork, kicked him out, thrown him out on the street, and now he says he's old and okay. he doesn't want to deal with it. So it's a spotty payment record so the person couldn't qualify anyway. Right okay. at this point, at least for the last year and a half. Okay, correct. so but not necessarily non performing but, but poorly performing. Poorly performing. Good. Yeah. Okay, well, on this one, the way I'd analyze it is, you know, certainly from a collateral perspective, you know, even on the 35000 quick cash value, so to speak, or wholesale, um, I think, you know, I wouldn't worry if somebody owed me seven to 8000 if, you know, that, you know, that I'd be um, stuck with something, you know, that if, 
you know, if I owned it is only worth 3000 you know. So I, I think in that case, you know, there's peace of mind that the collateral is there. The tough thing with these smaller contracts, though, is that uh, the amount of, of effort or TLC or, oh, yeah. you know, involved and, and just supporting your overhead, um, you know, postage, <laughs> you know, it takes up such a large, perf- and then also if they're not paying on time, it's going to take a lot of, um, you know, we, we call it high touch, it, you know, a lot of phone calls uh, to, you know, and, and you know, our goal wouldn't be to end up with the property. Our goal would be to receive payments if we bought it. So on this one, it, it, it'd be difficult to, to look into this one because um, it would be very time consuming, it sounds like. And, you know, it, it would almost, um, you know, I, I don't think I'd be very close to the figure he wanted uh, if I were to buy it. it Let's well, add a zero to it. Let's add a zero okay. to both. Okay. If you're making okay. 300000 Okay. And oh, seventy, eighty thousand. Well, then you know, then from a time perspective, I I think that's a very good point. Is you know, you're 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 allocating time to something that uh, is going to you know help you pay your bills. Uh, I've got you know one in college and another one you know in middle high school. So you know, you're looking at you know those those needs, uh, not wants, but sort of needs. Um, and, you know, you've, you've, you know, you want to look at how you allocate your time towards, you know, uh, deals, so to speak, that are going to help you, you know, reach those goals. So is your time better spent, you know, chasing something that, uh, you, you know, you might get lucky to make, uh, you know, a, a couple thousand versus something that's going to give you income, uh, and a return on investment for the next, you know, several years, um, so, for example, you know, if you focus too much on yield, and I know I'm not answering the question directly, but I'm analyzing it. Um, you know, if you focus on yield, um, you know, you probably get a, a real good yield if you bought that $8,000 contract. You know, let's say the gentleman would take 6000 for it. I'm sure he would. You know, or even if he would take five or 5500 I mean, it's a sky-high yield, but it's equivalent sometimes. Let's say, you know... Um, I gave you a dollar today and then you gave me $2 back tomorrow. Well, I made 100% on my money. And then if you annualize it, it's, you know, it's going to come up as error on my calculator because it's so high. But meanwhile, if I want to go, you know, to Starbucks, I can't afford anything on the menu. No, I can't. So, you can't do yeah, either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, the, you know, so that's the problem when you just look at yield rather than dollars. So I'd rather, you know, if you move the decimal point, I'd rather, you know, first of all, my security is still there. I've got an $80,000 receivable and a home that, you know, or real, you know, let's say it's even commercial property, as long as it's not like something very unique like the Silverdome. Um, <laughs> but, um, but in any event, um, you know, let, you've got a highly marketable uh, property that's worth $350,000. Uh, somebody's going to owe me eighty dollars at 10%. I mean, I, it's really just, you know, what discount do you think is fair? Okay, do I need to calculate exactly what it was? No, I mean, I know it's better than 10. And it's, and it's you know, first of all, and also the chance of default, uh, even though he's paying spotty, first of all, if things, you know, I might just put up with the spotty or sometimes when they see that it's not uh, an amateur um that it's it's a company, but also that we're local. If they call up, we're going to answer the phone. They're, it's not going to uh, 
customer service, you know, on the moon or, you know, or wherever. Yeah, stuck in that loop. Yeah. You know, they're going to, they're going to, you know, they're, they're also going to see that, oh, okay, well, the reason they're not, they're paying spotty is because when they were sending checks, uh, they were coming back on, or they were never getting cash. Be- why? Well, because this guy is close to retirement age. He went on a two month cruise or he went to go visit his brother in California. So the reason they're spotty is because they didn't know where to send the payments. Now that we're, you know, we're here, we're, you know, if they have a question or maybe the guy does want to pay off, but, you know, he's worried about how is he going to get a payoff letter to a title company? So many times we've been, um, we're, let's say we're, you know, we've been pleasantly surprised that when uh, we buy a contract, they, they start paying better, um, you know, because they, first of all, they see we're local. Now, change can be stressful for anyone, but I think we do a very good job communicating that the contract stays exactly the same. The only thing that's going to change is where you mail your payments. Uh, don't do anything different until you get something signed by the current holder and myself. Here's a phone number, you know, so um, I think, you know, that, that would work. So what would I pay for that? Basically, uh, the nice thing about this type of thing is I just have a conversation and say, you know, what do you want? And, you know, I, I've, if he, uh, if he's realistic, you know, we'd, we'd make a deal. I'm not going to lose something that sounds so good just because I, you know, wasn't able to get another 50 bucks out of it. Mm, no, that's good. Advice. So the first thing you do is like, okay, is it worth the effort? You know what your needs are and your desires and what the amount of effort it takes that's the first determination you make before you do anything else is like, okay, like the first one was too small. You'd probably pass on that. Right? Well, yeah, but I, I'd, I'd also call the person back. I wouldn't just throw it away. I mean, I would explain that to them. And if the answer was, you know, um, I I really, you know, I, I've made enough money from this house. I just don't want it. You know, I, I don't have any kids. I, you know, I just want to be done with it. Um, I, I, you know, this person, I've, you know, they were my tenant before they bought it. It's going to be their house real soon. I mainly, um, you know, just want to see that their needs are met and I'll just give it to you. I mean, you never know. Okay. I mean, I don't, that's never happened in this many years, but it's possible that they recognize the same things I do. Maybe this guy was in business and he understands, you know, it's small and, you know, it's very time intensive. And he may say, look, you know, I already made enough out of this property over the years. I don't need every last cent out of it myself. You know, Alan, you're not going to offend me. Tell me what you would pay. And, you know, and in that case, maybe the conversation would go a little further. Okay. And, yeah. um, like, yeah. and when I, you know. So you're my, looking for motivation too. Yeah. I mean, we, just like anything, I mean, if, if, it, yeah. you know, I'm, again, I'm not going to, uh, if it turn you know, if it is low hanging fruit or if it is something where, you know, we can help that person get from point A to point B, I'm not going to say, oh, it's too small, uh, you know, just, you know, without knowing more. But my first reaction is, you know, you know, if I, let's say I've got, you know, two voicemails that I listen to relatively the same time or two emails. It's, or, it's called you know, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, Jay, you're constantly monitoring your effort, how much effort you're putting into them, and then you're checking for essentially motivation. So you're looking at, you, you have a good idea what you need to get. Yeah. And, and then, then uh, motivation, right? yeah. And then also, I mean, you know, there's, you know, this is a single family home. Um, it's a little easier to evaluate than, you know, let's say somebody's got a, you know, I joked about the silver dome, but somebody's got a, a very unique property. Um, you know, let, you know, you move the decimal point. Yeah. But there's, if let's say the person that's buying it, 
uh, you know, gets ill or, or wins the lotto or whatever, and they're not in that business anymore, and they walk away, or they're trying to sell that property, and it's a stadium or you know, something, something weird, you know, yeah. so their problem's going to become my problem. Whereas, you know, in most cases, let's say, you know, in this person, they're paying spotty, things get difficult for them, you know, they owe 80000 it's worth 350000 you know, they'll put it for put it up for sale even if they end up selling it for 300 I'm not going to end up with it they're, they're going to you know we're going to get paid off um, so they're going to be able to solve the problem um, but if they've got a unique property that can't be sold or you know if there isn't much spread between what they owe and what the property's worth then their problem may become my problem and I have to you know look at that or if there's just no market if somebody while well, we have done one or two deals over the years in the UP um, you know it's you know, just to go look at it, you know, that's going to kill a day where, you know, I think you said this one is in Taylor. Well, I, I pretty much know how long it takes to get to the airport and yeah. back and forth. And, you know, who knows, I might be driving, you know, my son or my wife or somebody to go to the airport or something anyway. I, yeah, and I can do it, okay, I, you know. No, that's a yeah, good point. So, so I mean, also we, checking to see what kind of problem you're going to inherit. Yeah. Do you want to solve that problem or can you solve that problem you can inherit? Yeah. So I think, you know, you're, you're looking at, you know, both things. You're looking at it, you try to look at it from your point of view, but then you also look at it from your seller's point of view, because the whole economy is based on, you know, filling needs or making things win-win or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. I tend to say, you know, tell me where you are at point A, where do you want to get to at point B? And sometimes it's economic and sometimes it's really not economic. Um, you know, and, but, you know, it, it's a burden. Well, why, you know, people's tolerance. Uh, sometimes somebody sells a house. They thought, uh, selling it on a land contract was a great idea because they'd get maybe 7% interest. Whereas if they put their money into some other investment vehicle, they'd get, you know, two or three. Um, but then, you know, they're retired, they don't have, you know, they've been in a stressful job their whole life and they figure they'll retire, could get rid of stress. But then they find out they still have the same amount of stress. Well, what's the stress? Well, the payment's due on the first and it always comes on the fourth. And that, you know, and they just can't stand it and their spouse can't stand it and it keeps them up at night. Well, I could probably live with that. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and um, you know, I mean, especially if it always comes on that day. I mean, they're paying, you know, I mean, it's it's probably based on when that person gets paid and, you know, we can deal with that. But on the other hand, I can certainly relate that if that's a pet peeve and they want to get rid of a pet peeve and their uh, their financial situation is just fine, whether they hold this or don't hold it, you know, how can I help you? Well, I can you get rid of this thing and give me a bag of money that I don't have to worry about, you know. Well, this guy, he's just tired. So yeah. he, I think he would qualify as, as okay. one of those people. So this think. isn't totally made up. Okay. This is not made All right. up. No, okay. Well, nobody, I, I got I got an option on yeah. this. So, yeah. <laughs> You're the only person I know who uh, does this. Okay. So I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that too much. But um, so, so let's back up a little okay. bit. While we're talking about this deal, every profession has its own nomenclature, um, its own language. So can you kind of walk me through yield? amortization, all of it, like, 
just so as we continue forward, we probably should have done this in the beginning now that I'm thinking about it. But hey, it's the first podcast. All right. Um, well, I should have brought a textbook to yeah, just well, give just, you Yeah, just some time. of the basic ones, you know, for, for people who are listening and they don't know. Yeah. Know. Well, um, you know, it's funny. I was asked by, uh, I, you know, by the time this airs, I'll probably know the answer, but I was asked whether I'd be interested in uh, being an adjunct uh, instructor at EMU uh, this fall for a class because I think the uh, professor had a, uh, a medical issue or something. So the department head is looking for someone and an attorney friend of mine asked if I'd be interested. And I was reading the textbook over the weekend to see if I, you know, felt I could fill the shoes and you know I a little I, light reading yeah well it, it, it was and and my degree was in communication so everything you know I, I I've learned has been from experience or from reading you know like just on my own or you know to get licenses you have to read you know the, the text usually um, so I, I may not you know be giving textbook answers to everything, but you know yield I would describe as the you know the return on investment, um, you know which you know would you know internal rate of return or uh, you know the the interest rate plus you know the discount factor would give you your yield if you're buying a discounted note, similar to how you might uh, price a bond. Of course, some bonds are purchased at a premium. Um, you know, so that either is either going to confuse people more or maybe explain that a people little bit. probably know bonds, actually. Uh, okay. No real estate. Okay. You would hope anyway, considering probably most of their retirements in bonds. Well, right? you know, yeah. they, they probably know they get a statement every month yeah. or, year, or quarter or year and just look at the bottom line and hope Good, that, they man. hope that the investment managers know about yield and bonds. But I don't know how many, uh, you know, and so... So I think, you know, the, the yield is, you know, it's generally percentage-based telling you, uh, you know, how your money supposedly is growing. Now, that could be a negative as well. But, um, you know, if somebody's doubling their money, that's 100% yield. Um, you know, of course, you know, it could go down and, um, you know, and it could go up. But usually, you know, you're looking at a, a yield um, for a, a prospective investment. And now that... Um, you know, can we go on to something else yet? Yeah, I'm just going to shoot right. a bunch. So, like, okay. so we have land contract, note, promissory note, paper. These are all mortgage. These are all very similar um, instruments, and, and we kind of been using them back and forth. Yeah. Well, in it, it's in the structure how you build the transaction. Now we talked about contract for deed and land contract a little bit at the beginning. Now in, in Michigan, you know, if you're getting a loan from a bank and an individual could do this too, you could also use uh, a mortgage and a note. Now a mortgage is another word for lien. So that would be uh, the lien on the property and the note is an IOU. So the reason there's both of them is the note by itself is just an IOU with no collateral. Well, a bank isn't going to loan in most cases without collateral, and neither should a person if the house was supposed to be the collateral. So uh, the the, par the uh, borrowing party uh, would also sign a mortgage or a lien on the real estate as well. So that's where you have mortgage and note. Uh, but you know, a lot of times if you buy land contracts, you might call yourself a note buyer. Um, 
you know, because it's, you're buying someone's promise to pay, uh, whether it's on a land contract form or on IOUs, a promissory note. Right? You're buying IOUs. Secured IOUs. Yeah. That's actually probably a good way to say it. Everybody Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Secured, purchasing secured IOUs. Yes. And you have to look at, you know, and, the, and that's why you look at this, uh, look at everything from another angle to see what happens if if that if they break the promise if they don't pay on the IOU you know it's a you know it's good if everything works like clockwork but what happens if they don't pay is there any collateral okay what is the collateral is it buildable like in that example or do i even you know okay i have a note and i have a mortgage well, is it signed where it's supposed to be signed? Did the right people sign it? Does it have the right dates? Does it even have the right property on it? Uh, does it have a provision for what happens if they don't pay? You know, it says, I'm supposed to pay. Well, what happens if you don't? Um, so, the, you know, we, we look for clarity. And these are all things we've learned over the years. But fortunately, I learned a good bit of it on the first deal. Yeah, I, I, just a quick pause here. I, I, how many land contracts or notes or IOUs, which actually now I'm thinking about it, We'll, we'll say IOU is also a promise to pay because I'm just not sure how well that would translate oh. in Europe or something okay. like that. Okay. It's colloquial American English. So we'll say promise to pay too. So hopefully that makes sense for, for everybody listening. But I imagine a lot of land contracts, especially from mid seventies through the mid eighties, probably even today based upon the number of people I've, I've met, um, probably wrote their own land contract instead of maybe or maybe they didn't hire a lawyer; they hired a real estate agent or something like that. Um, do you have any thoughts on that when you're looking through? Well, I, I'd prefer that you know they would be written professionally. It's easier for me to uh, you know to to look for the clauses. You know, um, I I I'd suggest the opposite though. My at least from my personal observation of what I've seen when. Wow, Over the okay. years, I'm surprised by that. yeah, they, they were more professionally done earlier in my career than now. And my explanation for that is because they were more prevalent, um, the and and because you know people weren't there weren't due on sale clauses to violate. You know, lawyers and title companies were involved uh, in the transactions. They had now they didn't have internet. You know, you know, forms library, but they actually had like a room in the title company where they had all these forms and they would go get their land contract form, whether it was ABC title company or XYZ title company or, you know, this, uh, you know, the Greater Michigan Association of, you know, real estate brokers, they might have a formal land contract, you know, so you, you'd see, you know, in, in different areas of the state, you know, whether it was a title company form, a board of realtors form, um, you know, there was some standardization. Um, and then, of course, some lawyers would, would do their own. Um, nowadays, because, um, you know, a lot of, I, again, and it, I'm not, I don't have access to every land contract in Michigan, but a lot of what I'm seeing and more as a percentage basis is what I'll call the kitchen table type land contract. And part of that is because of the internet. People, you know, they, they see, okay, well, the title company could close it, but they're going to charge, you know, two, three hundred dollars. I can Google land contract and download this form. And even though it says prepared by law firm in Idaho, um, I'm going to go ahead and use it. And even though it's a sample right across or whatever. Wow. And, you know, so, and so we see that or we see handwritten things. Um, and again, that documentation, everything's great if somebody's making their payments. But if somebody dies or doesn't make their payments or goes bankrupt, you're going to be relying on, you know, that document. 
And there used to be a, a commercial about, I think it was an air filter or something, you can pay me now or pay me later. It's a lot easier to pay a title company or attorney, and I'd re- recommend an attorney, um, knowledgeable attorney. Um, we always recommend attorneys. Yeah. Um, you know, t- to do it right the first time rather than say, oh, you know, we for, you know, we forgot to, you know, put that decimal point there. or We forgot even the clause of, you know, of, of what happens if they don't pay. There is no ability to forfeit or foreclose on the land contract. Um, or, you know, did you, you know, you thought this was going to be 10 years? Did you, did you even do the math to see that it doesn't even amortize and, you know, and, you got a problem here. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. Uh, I'm glad I asked. Them, yeah, I would have. I would have thought it would have been worse before, and then with the internet, would be better. Yeah, but, but I think because land, there aren't a lot of land contracts, and even in title companies, you know, sometimes it's the 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 veteran person that knows how to do them, and if that person's on vacation, and then you're relying on maybe the person that answers the phone, you know, to do that deal, and they're like, I've never done a land contract before. We do one or two a year, yeah. you know, versus you know the '70s, '80s when Every other deal was a land contract, and everybody knew. You, again, it's the, you know, it's just not as common. So you know, and even the people that used to do a lot of them, like I used to do a lot of them, but I'm not up to date on this anymore. And um, you know, so you're seeing, you know, more issues because of that. Okay, what about um, amortization? Because you used to actually do this by hand. This is pretty amazing. Well, I didn't personally, but my grandfather, who I never met, you know, would would do the, uh, okay. the figure. Yeah. But I mean, you can do it by hand, and I know how to do it. I mean, it's it's arithmetic. So, you know, let's say I'm going to screw up the arithmetic, so I'll give you just the concept of it. But uh, can I say screw up on your Absolutely. podcast? Okay, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's mild. This yeah. is uh, for Jeremy. This is like getting it uh, G-rated compared yeah, to MC sure, seventeen. Sure. But uh, in any event. Um, you know, let's say, you know, someone owes you, uh, you know, or, or you owe someone $50,000 and it's at, um, you know, 10% interest. So, and, you know, so the amortization, you know, the first month, uh, you know, 10% a year is what, $5,000 divided by 12. Maybe I should have done something with six. But anyway, you know, <laughs> yeah. so you divide that by 12 and then you would know that monthly interest if it's computed monthly. And if their payment... It, you know, let's say that figure, and I'm going to get it wrong, but let's say that figure is $600. Might even be right. No, I don't think so. Because uh, that's the, then if the payment $700, then you know, okay, if 600 of that $700 was interest that month, then there's a $100 principal reduction. So now the next month it's forty nine nine, and then you do it over again. And, and, you know, so that's where you have a principal reduction. So when someone takes out a 30 year mortgage, they work backwards. And, you know, with, with, apps on your phone or with amortization programs it's pretty easy you figure 360 months yeah and then you know you solve for the payment so but if you were to do it by hand and you know i i actually you know sometimes we'll spot check our servicing program and yes you need a special license to service land contracts in michigan in most states um but uh, you know we'll check it, or someone you know you know may want to do that at home. So I, you know, what I just described to you, I have a little form that you know if somebody wants to know how to do that. You know they can do it by hand if they want to check. And um, you know I mean the programs work pretty well, fortunately. Thank God for apps. That's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> but but once in a while, I mean whether you know uh, you know it could be a leap year, it could be you know something you know you you do find a bug in a program. I mean fortunately we haven't 
fun bugs than ours. But, you know, I've seen situations where usually it's key punching air. You know, it's human air rather than, um, you know, than the actual program making an air. But it's, it doesn't hurt to, to check it by hand sometimes because you, it can be done with just arithmetic. That's amazing. So here, so here we are, 1989, January. Had you married your wife yet? No. Uh, that, Have you uh, proposed? I didn't propose until 93. So we started dating Ooh. January of 87 and then got August married in, in, uh, in August of 94. So, uh, but we've been married uh, 21 years and, um, you know, two wonderful kids and uh, oh, wouldn't change anything. So between 1989 and when you got married, had you still decided just to do this business or were you just kind of... Um, did it grow on you or did it kind of pull you in like a black hole or nothing else was available or you just fell in love? Well, I, I liked what I was doing and then um, we, we grew the business a little bit. In 1990, uh, we applied to the state to get our mortgage license. We had enough land contracts at that point that we needed the servicing license. And then also, um, when if someone had a balloon payment due to us, um, this is you know, hard, you have to put yourself in these days, but the, the highest rate a, a non-licensed lender could charge was 11%. And actually the market rate was, was higher than that oh, yes. in some cases at that point. Right? So if you had a license, you could charge more than that. Now, um, the market changed shortly after that uh, by the mid to late nineties, you know, prevailing interest rates, they were still a lot higher. First loan I got in my house was 8%. And I was happy to get it. Uh, so it's hard to believe that, you know, that was a good rate. That was a conforming Fannie Mae rate. Yeah, 8% is what's wrecking Greece, by the way, if you're wondering about like that's 7.5%. Exactly. Yeah, I think I had 7 and a quarter on a condo I bought before that, before we bought our house. And now I'm like a little over 3 or something. But, um, you know, so you have to look at, you know, what the, the going rate was. But, you know, and so we... In 90, we got our mortgage license and um, we we figured, you know, we had the license. Uh, what could we do with it? So we sort of had two choices. One was to compete with the big boys, which would be to hire a bunch of loan officers and, um, you know, and do a lot of volume and then sell those loans on the secondary market. And it would be a high volume, low margin business. The other choice, which is, you know, probably me being sort of a perfectionist, I was more comfortable with was, um, you know, just doing more high margin lending, um, but lower volume, um, getting to know our customers, loaning, you know, in uh, maybe market space that was ignored by some of the other lenders, things that made common sense, but yet just didn't fit the square peg in the square hole. So that was, so we grew the business, um, you know, by, you know, we, we're buying the IOUs or land contracts. Like and then we, lending. and then we also started doing, you know, niche lending. It yeah. Made sense. Yeah. Is and, the emphasis still on security? As well, well, well both. I mean, we, we've, we always figured, you know, that we didn't want to do uh, what others would call a loan to own. Um, it, it, part of it was sort of an ethical uh, choice that, uh, you know, we, we figured if we want to buy property, we'll just buy property. Um, you know, it, we're, we're not yeah. looking to put people into loans that they can't afford and end up owning it. That that's way. actually, hold on, let's stop. That's okay. a great point. You just, for, for whatever reason, that just, cause I was thinking, so going back to this deal that I gave you this hypothetical, not so hypothetical deal, um, it appealed to me right away, the security and how you could lose, but the, what you just said right now, just like slap me in there, like with a frying pan, like, could just go out and buy it why do i need to buy a note to potentially maybe someday own it 
That's a really that's a really good point because it would be just a lot easier to go out and purchase the real estate, right? And do whatever you wanted with it. You wouldn't have to buy a problem and wait. Well, yeah. And then, you know, and then our goal again, you know, similar to when I was talking to people making calls, it's, you know, my, you know, we might, we have money to invest that my dad earned, you know, from dentistry and then selling his practice. And then, you know, fortunately, so real we've done money. okay. Not well, yeah. 2000s money. We're talking real dollars. Well, you know, and, um, you know, so our goal was to, you know, to, to invest that and, um, you know, so and to have a return. So we, you know, and we wanted the loans to perform. We wanted to, you know, find a way, you know, it sounds somewhat altruistic, but I think it, it was and is. I mean, we want to help, but there's a mutual help. I mean, we would, you know, get a return on our investment to person that you know maybe didn't meet the square peg and square hole um you know would they would be helped as well i can give you a couple examples one you know as an investor similar to yourself looking to buy property and but you know time was of the essence or the deal would be bought by someone else happened to be a lakefront property and uh he person had great credit but because the land value exceeded the house value it it didn't meet the secondary market standards. It was, you know, quirk in the appraisal. And why is that? Well, the area where the property was, they were used to be old cottages, and then people are tearing down these old cottages and building these big houses. Part of it's because there's now sewer and water, but also population shift. So um, this person had that, you know, wanted to buy this property. He could have walked in the bank and gotten a loan on a you know a, a home in a subdivision and everything was perfect except for the, the 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 he didn't have the deal would have been gone and then also is that you know the appraisal said you know land value exceeds the structure value and um you know so we did you know we're able to help in that situation um and you know it was a good well, yeah, deal there's, on there's a big difference between selling medicine and selling drugs right both are still selling, but yeah, you don't want to sell drugs. Yeah. You want to sell medicine if you can help somebody, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard that analogy before, so, um, but, uh, it, you know, it, it's a good one. <laughs> and then Lots of ways to make money. You want to feel good about it. Exactly. Money, right? Yeah, you want to sleep at night. Um, and then, you know, another situation, um, you know, it was, um, I'm trying to think it was early 2000s, uh, a business owner contacted me. Uh, she owned a, a junkyard or salvage yard. She didn't want to borrow on that property, and I don't think we could have because of the environmental uh, due diligence oh, required. Man, yeah. But uh, she owned a home um, that she had fallen behind on property taxes on. It was otherwise free and clear. And when she told, you know, I asked, well, how did that happen? She said, well, my business wasn't profitable the last couple of years because I had to to meet new standards of the EPA and Michigan Environmental, uh, I think it was DEQ or DNR at the time, um, to meet those standards to stay in business. She had to invest more or clean up or put up fencing or whatever it was. And so she was robbing Peter to pay Paul money that would have gone to taxes. So she had equity um, at the time. Um, you know, there was, you know, again, you know, I, I don't want to lose my license and we want to do things the right way. So I, I said, you know, there's a regulation that says a lender cannot engage in a pattern of practice of making loans without regard to a borrower's repayment ability. I remember that. And, um, and I said, you know, so I said, I need to ask you, I said, how are you going to repay me? And she had a shoebox full of salvage auto titles and an Excel spreadsheet 
of what every uh, part was worth on those vehicles down to the crushed metal. Wow. I said, okay, so you've got free and clear inventory. That's Absolutely. how you're going to pay. As You're not going to fire sale at all today, but as you sell it, that's how you're going to pay. I said, I get it. And, um, you know, but then in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, you know, we have a license. We get examined whenever they feel like examining us. But, and we, we knock on wood, have never had a violation. And, um, and you know, so how am I going to feel if an examiner comes in and they pull files randomly to audit and for compliance and, you know, make sure your computer programs do the gonna, math right? Let's go back yeah. to the original point where you were pulling off the dot matrix, <laughs> the attention to detail. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so exactly. So I'm thinking, okay, well, how am I, you know, let's say this examiner um, and, you know, I, I, I'm embellishing here, but, you know, cause, but let's say it's like you're, you know, someone who first day on the job and they graduated with a major in social work and a minor in communism. And oh, they, yeah. you know, and they come into your office with, and they want to, you know, get promoted and they pull this file you know, is this, you know, how am, how am I going to feel about making this loan then? And I thought about it and I said, okay, well, the regulation at the time, first of all, I felt it was a good loan. I mean, the person, you, you know, you know, had a, a going business, had free and clear inventory in which to pay. Um, you know, they had a long history in that business, knew what they were doing. And, you know, and I felt that it was compliant. I also knew that the words pattern or practice were in that regulation. And so if the examiner said, you know, I, I think you've, you know, I don't think they had a repayment ability. First of all, I'd say, well, they do free and clear inventory. And I think I sent the borrower to Kinko's to make copies because I would have run out of toner making copies yeah. of all those. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, amazed at their organization. That would yeah, say a lot about somebody too, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, I think that helped. But um, in any event, um, you know, I, I felt that we could defend it. But then I also, you know, let's say if the examiner said, you know, I've talked to my supervisor and he or she also feels the same way. I'd say, well, you know, you can check every other file. We certainly don't have a pattern or practice of of determining repayment ability based on, you know, inventory. Usually it's W-2s and, you know, 1040s and, you know, more conventional underwriting standards. But in this case, you know, we felt it w was something that made sense. But, you know, uh, we're not going to, you know, we don't have a pattern of practice. You could check every other file. So I didn't think there was a danger of them taking my license off the wall or us, you know, having our name in the paper, you know, that we were bad actors or anything. So, um, you know, first, and so I think that was a, a good loan decision. Now, fast forward about four or five years, the Federal Reserve, who was in charge of that regulation, took the words pattern or practice out of the regulation so if it had been four or five years later, I probably wouldn't have taken a chance, of, you know, because there was risk that, you know, if an examiner disagreed, you know, my license was on the line. And again, Cut that risk reward, you know, but the, the risk reward dynamic <laughs> yeah. um, would have been different. Now, there's a little more to this story, too, because um, this person, um, you know, you know, owned her business and did well. Uh, never, you know, defaulted or anything. And in the early 2000s, probably within a year or two years after we made that loan to her, uh, in Michigan, there was a proposal put forth between the put forth by the legislature uh, to pass a law that was similar to what Dodd Frank ended up being on a federal level. And while some of the consumer groups um, 
felt that that law should be passed. They were, you know, busing some people to Lansing to protest and testify that, you know, that they thought it was a good idea. Uh, my customer came with me to Lansing and she testified how this quote unquote subprime loan helped her. It was a lifeline when, you know, that existed. And, um, you know, it was it really, when you talk about fulfilling and, um, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, generate tears or anything, but it, it really, you did, you know, we did feel good, uh, you know, helping that person get from point A to point B so much that she felt that it was a, a good deed to come to Lansing, taking time out of her work day and coming, you know, meeting me at 7 a.m., driving together there uh, for her to testify before the Senate Banking Committee that, you know, this restrictive law shouldn't be passed. And that's the, ultimately the way they voted in Michigan. That's amazing. That's a great story. Um, yeah, no free market economist here. So what two people freely decide to do. Um, that's amazing. Well, and that's a good point. I would like to emphasize that for, for people listening. Think about what you're doing and how it would look, especially in the current climate. And we're definitely going to get this way towards the the latter half of this um, of this podcast about the the current um, we'll call it atmosphere, regulatory atmosphere, the direction we're heading. I might almost say European style um, regulation. Is what would it look like? To someone from the outside looking in to what you're doing, I think you brought up a great point there is, wow. And she felt so strongly about it. She actually went with you to Lansing to protest against these commie bastards. Well, restrictive bill. Yeah, I'll translate. Okay. (laughs) These people who think they know what everybody else should do just because it's bad for them. Well, I I, I think, you know, I'm going to be a little more diplomatic um, and, and... is that you know there there certainly were some abuses, and and I think there's no doubt um, that 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 our business is the baby thrown out with the bathwater, and I think the economy actually you know got rid of some of those bad actors. They were making not only you know I think they broke the laws that existed at that time. Didn't need um, new laws. They yeah. did. Yeah, they probably didn't need new laws. Um, and and also I think they were you know they weren't good underwriting and you know so they went out of business and um and and unfortunately you know when the some of the new laws and the pendulum tends to swing and it probably you know was too loose some would argue that allowed some of these bad actors uh to take advantage of um you know of the old regulatory system and now it's come back you know probably too far that you know deserving borrowers like the lady I described, we couldn't make that loan today legally. No, I could no. talk to 10 attorneys and I've talked to a number of one. And, you know, it's like going through one of these high powered mazes where you run into a dead end everywhere. So we actually exited uh, making consumer loans, as you know, yeah. but the audience doesn't, um, you know, uh, 2010, 2011, um, when we saw this coming, um, you know, because, you know, we couldn't, uh, we, you know, we talked to experts, attorneys, and uh, is there a way to navigate this new regulatory maze, so to speak? Uh, they didn't have, you know, clear navigation signals for us. And, um, you know, I, I remember walking out of one of those meetings with, uh, you know, compliance attorney, and we also had a transactional attorney in the room, and I figured it'd be entertaining to watch them debate. They ended up both agreeing, even on what we I thought might be a bulletproof uh 
you know, compliant deal. And they said, it's too risky and you don't want to wow. be a test case. So at that point we put That's up the, the white flag. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. No. And I called my dad after, um, and I, you know, he said, how did it go? And I said, well, not too well. He said, well, what happened? You know, and what did this guy say? What did that guy say? And did you talk about this example that, you know, I essentially made up as what I thought might work. And, um, you know, I said, I, I mentioned that and they, they both agreed. And, you know, I said, it's really too bad because, you know, there's more demand than ever for, for this type of product and there's really no competition. And my dad, without me just missing a beat says, you know, if, if it ain't legal, we ain't doing it. I mean, it essentially, you know, I, you know, it's, it's like heroin. And, you know, if, if, if we're not, um, you know, there's demand for heroin too, but if it yes. ain't legal, we're not selling it. Well, and, that's, that's always my yeah. argument that I want to get off track, off topic too much, but my argument against comp compliance is compliance pushes the good act, usually pushes the good actors out, not the bad. Well, the ones who are concerned about following the law, the ones who are concerned about how it looks are concerned about their investors and their investments and their families, um, they they look at compliance and they consider compliance. And if it's muddied or difficult or uncertain, they were probably the ones who were never going to make that kind of loan anyway or significantly less likely to originate a loan yeah. like that. And they get kind of pushed out. And the bad actors whom we know plenty, I've had experience with them personally, um, tend not to care so much well, about compliance. Yeah, I mean, they were breaking the old laws and, you know, they may break the new ones. I mean, the biggest example, and I think, you know, you've, uh, I think I brought this up at the first presentation I did before uh, RDI, you know, was uh, looking back towards prohibition as you had a product that was legal one day and then, you know, due to, you know, federal and state laws, uh, became illegals. And if you look at, uh, for the old time Detroiters in the area, there was the straw brewery. And, uh, you know, uh, a German family immigrated to the United States, started a brewery, probably been in existence, you know, 60, 70 years by the, you know, early 1900s, uh, had a big brewery in Detroit. And then the next, you know, they, they saw it coming. Yeah, stroke of a pen that, you know, yeah. that product you're selling. So what did they do? They didn't necessarily close up shop. They started, they changed their name to Stroke Products, and they sold items including ice cream. And ice cream actually was still around when I was in high school, and there might be one or two. They're still around. Yeah, they're yeah. still around. Not, I don't know if they sold the name, yeah. but they're still around. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Stroke's ice cream, that's where that came from. Uh, and then, of course, when that's they amazing. changed the law back, yeah, okay. But from. but if you were in Detroit or Chicago or anywhere during the prohibition period, you could still buy beer. But who did you buy it from? Well, gangsters. Al Capone and gangsters. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, it's the same thing here. I mean, I mean, it wasn't a hard choice for us. You know, we talked to the lawyers. Is there a way? Uh, you know, to to still make loans to consumers um, and no, okay, well, you know, we'll find something else to do. Uh, we we did always about maybe a twenty to thirty percent of our market uh, was making loans to to landlords and real estate investors. Um, you know, so now if we're walking away from two thirds to eighty percent of our market. You know, we've got to concentrate on what we can do, or we got to learn how to make ice cream or, yeah, or something, something like that, else. or yeah, I got to yeah. wait for AT and T to call some days. That's a good uh, attitude. So, for anybody listening, this is, and I think in the future, and I'm not trying to be too pessimistic, but I think Alan has convinced me certainly that as much as I don't like compliance, it, it is smart. And he's always trying to foster an atmosphere of compliance, but also looking forward into the future. 
we are very likely for some period of time to probably have to comply more rather than less. And I just want to point out that I think it's a good attitude. Um, as bad as it, is, it might be for somebody with the stroke of a pen to disable or destroy a percentage or all of your business, um, just start something else. Do something different. Don't, don't be that. Don't think you're going to dance around the edges or, or, or anything like that. I think that would be a bad attitude. So, But anyway, so, so here we are. 1989, January. You're on the pay. You're on your father's payroll. You're dating your wife. You got married in 1984. At what point did you know? 94. 94? Yeah. 94? Yeah. 89. You're talking about, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's okay. 89. You got married in 94. At what point did you know this is like, okay, I just love this. I'm going to make a run at it. I'm going to make a go at it. I squandered my 20s. I was drinking beer, doing drugs, and all that other stuff. Nothing good. Where, where, where along in that process did you make that this, or did you have the? I don't know if it came to you, or you made the decision, or you said I'm going to try this for a certain number of years. What did that look like? Well, I, I, I didn't. I mean, it was what I was doing, and I, you know, most days I liked it, uh, and I was, you know, uh, you know, earning a, a decent living. Um, you know, I building some savings. I was living fairly frugally, you know, and it's one reason I didn't married yet. But um, but I, I, I think, you know, at that point, I, I, I liked it. Um, I didn't really, I didn't have my eyes looking at, at other things. There were certainly some days that were more challenging than others. Um, I remember uh, getting a letter for our license renewal, renewal for the mortgage license and our Mortgage, you know, now it's much higher than this, but I think it went up one year from three hundred to six hundred. And the Michigan Mortgage Brokers Association was very young at the time, and we had joined it. Um, and I called the president of the association, you know, who was a mortgage had a mortgage company in East Lansing. He said, you know, he called the the state, and you know, the uh, he said, well, they checked with the mortgage bankers, but they didn't even know that the mortgage brokers existed. And, you know, so and the mortgage bankers were mainly bigger companies and they said they didn't mind if it doubled. So at that point, I, I, I did make a decision that um, I, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have any input on that. And I thought if something like that ever happened again, um, I might have even said over my dead body or something like that. <laughs> you know, I was younger. That's and, right. And so at that point, I and, I think, and I think because I, I made that, you know, call to the president of the association um, and, you know, I went to, you know, to a meeting and um, and I remember, you know, one of the deputy commissioners who is now a friend of mine, he's retired from the state, he's now working in government affairs. But, you know, at the time, I mean, he's speaking there, I think, you know, I, I'm a kid in the business a couple of years, I, it's like governor speaking or president, I mean, I, you know, looking up at the stage. And, um, but then, you know, I, uh, they asked me to serve on the board. And, you know, and then I, uh, I met our lobbyist for the association. And, you know, they, I, I you know, I, we had read the license law and, you know, would have some comments and I got involved and I, not only did I have a passion for our own business, I developed a passion for the industry as a whole. Now, part of it, and my, you know, my dad may say now I went a little overboard on that. If you look at, you know, like the bio he read. Um, but I think part of it is working in a small family business. Um, you know, I, I, the, the difference between that and maybe taking that AT&T job is that, you know, I don't really have a work social life or, you know, pe you know, other than customers, maybe some title people are going to meetings now with, you know, RDI. Um, 
but I think that association, you know, gave me some camaraderie and, and it was fulfilling to, you know, to, to serve and, and, you know, so I enjoyed that. So I think if anything, the passion, you know, grew over the years rather than, you know, uh, was I looking at other things? So basically, the government decided to double your annual fee, and Mr. Alan Daniels was like, oh, hells no. Made a call, joined, ended up on the, and then ended up on the board, and now you literally have an alphabet <laughs> behind your name yeah. when it comes to compliance and organizations and everything that you've done. Um so you are that guy now. You're that guy up there you were looking well, at. Yeah, uh, we yeah, I've gotten you know, I've gotten involved. Hold on, well, let me read this. So National Association of Realtors, Conventional Financing and Policy Committee, Policy Committee and Public Policy Coordinating Committee, Michigan Association of Realtors, 2013-2014 board member director, 2014-2015 public policy committee member, North Oakland County Board of Realtors, board member director. North, uh, National Association of Mortgage Brokers served as treasurer. Yeah. I mean, I could just keep I, Well, I think the right? biggest one, you know, as compared to the, you know... State I, of Michigan Mortgage Industry Advisory Board Chairman. Yeah. And, 2010 to 2015. Government Affairs Liaison, 2015-2016. Yeah. And, okay. And so I think, you know, where the circle goes with that, and, it, you know, and I would have never predicted it, is that... Um, you know, I I'm not, I was the chair of the Mortgage Industry Advisory Board. Well, what that board is, is we make recommendations to what used to be called the commissioner. But the commissioner is the person back in 1991 that, you know, talked to some senators and representatives and said, our department needs more money. <laughs> How about we raise the licensing fee? So now I'm on the board. I actually chaired that board um, that works hand in hand with the, the regulator. Um, and, and, you know, they have a lot more power. We're an advisory board. But again, we, we do serve in that liaison role uh, to have that communication. And, you know, if they are, are bringing up an issue that, the, you know, there, maybe there's some bad actors in the industry and they need, you know, some investigators or examiners and we need, you know, how are we going to get uh, the appropriations or, you know, the money to, to pay these salaries? Um, you know, okay, well, can the industry, you know, take a hit on the license fees or is there another way or, you know, is there some efficiency? I mean, that's just, you know, one item. And um, you decided you want to be an integral part of that. Yeah, you at, a, at, at a young age, I, I got involved. I had no idea that this advisory board would ever, you know, that they'd ever revise. I mean, this took an act of revising the law to create this board. Uh, and then, you know, I, I mean, obviously I was involved enough but then they, you know, my name was put forward and then, you know, the commissioner, you know, appointed me as well as uh, there's a total of seven on that board. Um, there, for the first two years of the board, uh, someone whose family has been in the industry a very long, long time was the, the chairperson. And then uh, I guess, you know, he decided at the end of two years he didn't want to chair that board anymore. And he recommended me to chair the board. And um, the board agreed and voted me chairman for the next uh, five years. And then um, because I'll be term limited on the board, it's my eighth year. You have two consecutive four-year terms. Term limits? Yeah. Like a... <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I didn't uh, – I, I thought it would be better for transition if someone else chaired the board and then I could help with that transition before I leave the board next May. But, I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, any sort of plan. And it is, I, I mean, they we do get mileage reimbursement when we go to meetings in Lansing, but this is a non-paid 
um, board, but it is something where it started with, you know, I got a bill that was more than last year and, you know, I, I wanted to get involved. And, you know, then, you know, who would guess that a few years later I'm in Lansing testifying before the Senate Banking Committee. Um, you know, uh, I've got a video of one of them that I showed on Mother's Day to my family one year. <laughs> I think it's VHS, so it's going to be tough to show that again. Uh, but, you know, I mean, things I never thought I, I would do. And um, now, has it helped uh, my net worth? I don't know if it has or not, but I, I feel I've done, you know, most of the time the right thing. Uh, you know, I've made mistakes, uh, you know, like anyone in business, and uh, I have gone through a yellow light. Uh, you know, I've never had a speeding ticket, though. Um, why does that not surprise me? <laughs> okay. Daniels, why does that not surprise me at all? That's a good thing, though. I'm not making fun of you. Okay. I, we should all be so okay. careful, right? So 1984, you're in it, you like it, you got the alphabet, you're growing the business, you went and got a license to do um, we got servicing the yeah. and yeah, origination not, of loans, yeah, right? That was in 90, yeah. And you're 90, so you're, 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 you're finding niches where there's lots of value and security where you can feel good and you feel like if anybody was coming back and looking through that you'd at least by the laws of the time. Yeah. Well, and you would feel good. Yeah. I mean, and we did always look at repayment ability and, um, you know, and, and because we, and then one of the other things where there were other lenders, you know, we made, you know, we had a license we could originate and we still have a license. We could originate any type of mortgage. Um, but what we focused on was loaning our own funds and, um, you know, private money space that was generally, um, you know, a tick or two or three, sometimes higher than conventional rates. But the the deals made common sense and our default rate was, you know, lower than Fannie Mae. Why? You know, we met our borrowers face to face. We, you know, would design a, a, a mortgage product that fit their needs, that the payment was affordable for them, you know, and, and you know, essentially, if it didn't look like it was going to get them from point A to point B, you know, they wouldn't call back. But, uh, you know, so it was very, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, custom fit type thing. You meant Fannie Mae before Bill Clinton. Uh, okay. <laughs> so in, in any event, um, the we but we could have and we actually had my dad and I had a discussion, you know, should we also offer conventional mortgages, you know, be. But if but we felt that um, you know and again I'll say sort of an ethical consideration we didn't feel very good if we you know if someone said well you know you know if somebody asked me what my rate was and if it was a, a higher rate and they said oh well I don't want to pay that much and they said oh well we also offer conventional loans how could I do that yeah um, you know and now it's actually I mean it would be called steering towards a higher price loan so I'm you know the regulation caught up with what we had decided ethically was you know at least on our you know was was ethically wrong to offer both prime and subprime um, we felt, you know, we, this is what we offer. And, but, you know, the first question we would ask someone is, are you able to qualify conventionally? And if the answer was yes, well, you know, we don't, don't do offer, yeah. you know, but if the answer was no or yeah, but I'd say, well, what's the reason? They'd say, well, yes, I do qualify, but the deal is going to be gone in 10 days and it's going to take them six weeks to close. Okay, well, let's, you know, let's talk more about that, you know, because for them, maybe the value wasn't price or they were getting such a good deal on the property that oh, even if they really paid more point. for the financing, it was still an overall good deal. And again, that, you know, that was that house that was the land value exceeded the structure value. Were you really needed, basically? Yeah. Right? And if you were... 
Mine makes right. sense if yeah. they could repay. Yeah, so, um, you know, and, and now I, I do, one of the things I also do now, and I, I do, you know, I get paid for it. It's not enough to retire on, but I teach uh, mortgage and real estate continuing education. Now, the mortgage class each year, a mortgage loan originator needs eight hours of continuing ed. So that's a long day. But uh, And there's part of the component, and this is part of a federal requirement, is that there you have to teach ethics. And some of it, you know, is, is part of law, but some of it... Teaching ethics to realtors? <laughs> well, this is mortgage loan originators, <laughs> mortgage which you could probably originator. make the same comment, you know, <laughs> years ago. But but the the actually the, the populace of loan originators has been really scrubbed clean. I mean, under, you know, a law called the SAFE Act, which also was the first instance of seller financing regulation on a federal level that we saw... Um, there, there is a criminal background check, fingerprinting, criminal background check, uh, education, testing, you know, so you're not getting someone that, you know, maybe was, uh, you know, working, you know, uh, buying and selling used cars one day that's now, you know, in the mortgage world the next. I mean, they have to, you know, get, be able to pass all these tests and also the criminal background check now. So I think that populace is much more squeaky clean than it used to be. I mean, there's no doubt. Um, but but in teaching ethics, I remember a discussion I heard years ago and someone says, how do you teach ethics? Well, I mean, you know, there are some common denominators between all cultures and faiths and, you know, and even the non-believers um, is, you know, it, it do unto others isn't, is you know, universal. Uh, you know, how would you, you know, even as a kid growing up, how would you feel if I did that yeah, to you? No, if you, no, if you I, I think, lots of good points yeah. Like um, so I, I think that something, and then also like I thought about, you know, when making that loan, I knew what the regulation was, but also, you know, if I'm examined, you know, how am I going to defend that? And was it the right decision? And, you know, obviously I was proven right. I mean, she's paid off now, but this was, you know, a good loan to make and she proved it by making the payments. Um, but, also, you have to look at, and and different people may have a different uh, sensitivity level to this, or thicker skin might be a way of putting that. If if and Mike Wallace, I think may not be around anymore, but if you know, sixty minutes walked yeah. into your office and put a microphone in your face and asked you about that specific file, how are you going to feel talking about it? This is something I worry about all the time. Actually, <laughs> okay. I do. Well, I worry about how what we do, how it looks, how it's perceived. I've actually changed a lot of my language, especially of late, even in banter, because I, I worry about these things. I sometimes wonder that we're being drawn as these evil, almost like uh, corporate welfare bankers. You know, like would you? Yeah, just coming by, and before you go home, you got to slide off, you know, a certain percentage of the food from your family okay. to their mouth, and then you get to eat what's left over, and you kind of looked at like that, instead of how you put it, where these things actually can hurt the economy, where there is a niche, and a law didn't consider it, uh, this does have an impact on the economy, it does have an impact on people's life, that's why I thought it was so powerful that she actually went with you to Lansing, to back to, they just, that's, that's proof that these well, things matter when you're thinking about them. But yeah. You, but you're putting your, you have a plan when you do these things. Like, you're not just saying, hey, my plan today is make money. You're trying to make money, but am I compliant? Well, yeah. Do they well, uh, need my loan? Can they repay it? How would, it, how would I feel if somebody came through and flipped through this file? Like, you're thinking about this all the time, which is part of life. 
Well, yeah, it becomes sort of, you know, who you are. I mean, because, you know, you, you live these, you know, sort of regulation. These are the rules of the, of the game. And, um, you know, one of the uh, nicest compliments I, I ever heard was from a, a compliance professional who has taught and owned a, a school on the mortgage side and audits files of big banks and does that. And um, someone had you know, contacted her to I think to get a, a reference about me or something. And she said, uh, Alan does hard money and he does it the right way. And uh, then I got an email from this person if, you know, and, and if, you know, I don't want to name the name right now, but, it, you know, if, if, if you were described this way by this person, you know, I know what you have to be to even, you know, have her say anything nice about Because she doesn't say anything nice about anybody unless they deserve it. Well, you know? yeah, as hard as I am on realtors and where there aren't many mortgage brokers anymore and all that, but we all know um, real estate investors, uh, pretty much pawn scum, too. I mean, I, I hate to say it like that, but I've had RDI for a long time. I've met thousands of people. And I, I assume it's like this in most industries. I don't know. Maybe it's not. We do seem to attract a fair amount of riffraff, or I'm not sure why. Maybe I don't want to speculate, but when I'm making fun of everybody else, I guess what I'm saying is I understand the company I keep, and I try and keep better company, uh, but that doesn't mean that a lot of them aren't bad. And I do. Well, I, I think it what people need to realize is that it's, it, some of the gurus selling the CDs or on YouTube or whichever, you know, they they make it sound a lot easier than it is. Um, they may tell you, you know, a license isn't required when you actually read your state laws. You know, it, it may be required. And so I, I think, you know, if but if people don't know any better, ignorance isn't a defense. But, you know, they start going out and start shooting before they aim. Uh, if, and so I think, you know, if, if there's a lesson, it would be to, you know, to do a little research. And, you know, even though um, when I started, you know, it was, you know, helping, you know, I was prospecting buying land contracts, you know, for my dad, um, I had taken the 40 hour real estate class. So I, you know, it did tell me, you know, some ground rules. I passed the test. Um you know, so I, there were some basics that I think, you know, would be wise, you know, even if you're not going to go work for, you know, the, the yellow coats or the red coats or the green or whatever, you know, yeah. they don't have those same thing anymore. But, you know, one of the big franchises, the blue circle or whatever, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, that might, you know, you could, it's not a waste of time to take that class because you're going to get some basic knowledge that, first of all, you're going to find it useful in your investing career, things about, you know, different types of, uh, of deeds and, and ownership and leasehold and, and, um, you know, title work and appraisals because, you know, you're going to be selling, you know, property, you're going to be dealing with real estate agents. You want to know. And then, you know, things like usury, things like contract law. I mean, these are things that I didn't learn in, in high school or undergrad. I learned it in a 40 hour real estate class. Some of the basics that, you know, maybe should have been taught in, in, you know, an econ or something like that. I learned, you know, macro, micro, graphing, you know, well, you know, what's a contract? What's the statute of frauds? Um, you know, how does this, what's this register of deeds all about? What's priority of liens? You know, and that, you know, they teach you in that. And it's, um, you know, it's, it, you may say, oh, well, that sounds, you know, that's what everybody else is doing. Well, you know, there's a reason. It, it tells you the rules of the road. It's like getting a driver's license. So I'm, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent 
uh, you may find that you know your your business plan would exempt you from that, but at least you're going to find out what the exemptions are, and um, you know because that's going to. What I worry about, and we see this overreaction with the pendulum, um, you know th- that it might have been too loose before, and then people were abusing it, and then legislators don't get arrested. I'm sorry, don't get elected. Uh, do you need to do something here? Yeah, hold on. I think it might have just turned off. Okay. There we go. All right. Sorry, we're back. Um, this is my first podcast. You know, they tell you what the battery life is, and then there's what the real battery life is. But I came prepared. I had a backup camera and a backup battery, and I got the other one on. So so where we had left off before the unfortunate battery uh, death was we were talking about the pendulum swinging, where before it was too loosey-goosey, not much regulation. I almost want to consider it from, from what, 2002 to 2008, wild west of real estate. Yeah, well, I think we were, you were, talk, we were talking about in, uh, the reputation of real estate investors, and yes. then I was talking about the value of, uh, you know, of at least taking the class and, you know, really recommending getting licensed. And what concerns me, and it, it's related to that pendulum swinging, you know, too loose to, to too tight is that if you have either bad actors where it's a character situation or bad actions from people that are not knowledgeable, you know, so you got me bad actors and bad actions. Now, both of them are creating bad actions and bad results. I was then, one of those. Then you're going to have, then you're going to have an overreaction on the real estate investment side. Yeah. And so that's. Which I think we're seeing. Yeah, I think we are, or we will be. Very and, sure. you know, I think in Ohio, you're already seeing it, um, you know, on the wholesaling uh, interpretations and so forth. Um and so I think what worries me is is that, you know, I've seen it and lived through it on the mortgage side. And um, I think, you know, real estate is, is a great thing, but I think people have to respect the existing rules because if they're not respecting it, um, then you're going to see uh, an overreaction because politicians do not get reelected uh, based on you know, enforcement of existing laws. They're not going to say we're going to do a better job of giving the regulators money to enforce the law. No, they're going to say you need to vote for me because if elected, I'm going to pass a new law against these bad guys or I just voted for a new law or I just introduced a bill because that's where the photo opportunity comes. And I'm not saying they're bad people. I mean, they have a job to do. And if you want to do good things in government, the first thing you have to do is win a popularity contest. And if you remember high school or middle school or whatever, winning a popularity contest is is tough. I mean, because to be popular doesn't always mean you're qualified. So, you know, people have to do things to get elected to be able to do good things. Now, again, you've got, you know, maybe some people that are better than others and in that profession, too. But that's, you know, our system has some flaws. Um, You know, I think I I think it was my my dad quoted a story he heard he heard once. and It might have been about our court system, but it was uh you know, it's slightly better than dueling, you know, <laughs> having been a part of the court system. Yeah, but, yeah. but on the other hand, I mean, you know, you say, you know, uh, America is this and it used to be that, or it could be this and it is that, I mean, they're really it is, as, as flawed as, as it is, at least we can have a conversation about it without being jailed or shot. Um, so there really isn't anywhere else I'd rather be. And at least we do have the opportunity uh, to change things. Now, having 
uh, been successful in changing things and unsuccessful in changing things too, I realized that even if I disagree with a, a law, I'm not going to break it. I might try as hard as I can to change it in some instances, or in some cases, I just realize it's going to be beating my head up against the wall. Yeah. One of the reasons I've been more active locally on uh, in state uh, associations is because uh, when I did things in Washington, I, it was more frustrating. It was a lot easier to have an impact in Lansing than it is in D.C. Yeah, and, I imagine dealing with anything that feds is just... The extra layers of difficult. I mean, yeah, it, we got fifty different states, fifty different laws too, and yeah, yeah, so they can't possibly know everything when they're doing. Yeah, this stuff. so you know, so to um, you know, to trans transition, and I know you have other things you wanted to bring up before the next battery dies, yeah. but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's the the reason. One, it's I think it's going to be helpful for an individual to you know to to get licensed or at least have that pre licensed education to know the rules of the game so they don't break them because they're breaking Breaking the the rules of the game is going to have an impact not only on them, but the whole industry and um, you know all of our futures and our children's futures riding on that. It's pretty yeah. deep for a podcast. It is no, actually, we're going to come back to this a little bit more, but I want to fast forward. So you're married, finally ninety four <laughs> kids, September eleventh two thousand one. Everything changes, economy crashes, couple planes, terrorists. All that, and then we enter 2002 to 2008. So this is the the big boom, and unfortunately, this is when I came in at the tail end. Um, also, I, I lived all over the world. My father was in the military. I joined the military out of high school. I actually had no idea what economy actually was. That's one of the big problems about growing as growing up um, as a dependent. Uh, military family living all over the world living it's an artificial economy you get paid every two weeks no matter where you go there's a little america you go to the, you know we we lived on the economy wherever we were at but what i'm saying this is i had no idea what an economy was what government regulate that government regulation could have an effect on the economy um, I'm one of the guys who believed the Fed chairman and Bernanke and all those guys. And they say, no, no, it's fine. One month before the crash. So we are 2002 to 2008. You're definitely doing this now. You're married. You got kids. You're growing the business. You're originating loans now. What does 2002 to 2008 look like for you and your company? Well, I, I think, you know, the real estate market was was good. Things were appreciating. Um, we still had challenges because there was a lot of competition and there were pressures um, if we wanted to, you know, I use the term grow our portfolio, you know, a number of loans outstanding and, you know, amount of receivables, um, you know, and, and but we were because it was our own money you know, not Wall Street money, Yeah. you know, we, we had 100% skin in the game and we always asked ourselves, so what happens, you know, if something changes and we stayed fairly conservative. The other is we always were focused on, you know, trying to, you know, create, you know, do something that was, that was right or is right. And, um, you know, so a lot of times our, we found that our competitors didn't always feel the same way. They might be more short-term oriented um, because their goal was to write a loan and then sell it off. Um, so an example, maybe the best way is to share a story or yes, an anecdote. Yes, no, this is great. I mean, I, I had a woman um, that had contacted me um, 
she actually rented her primary residence, but she had in, inherited a home up in northern Michigan, Michigan in Interlaken, which is where there's a famous uh, musical school up there. And um, this home, um, I think, was roughly worth $100,000. And she wanted some money to pay. I think there were some back taxes and to do some improvements on it. And, um, you know, we, uh, I think, made a loan to her of, you know, $20,000 or, you know, a relatively small amount, low loan to value. And, uh, but the reason for that was, was twofold. Um, it, it, it allowed her to meet her needs. Um, but also with a bigger loan comes a bigger payment and with a, a not huge income. Um, I think, you know, she, she was obviously employed, but she didn't have a big income. Uh, and some of that she needed for rent. You know, we had concerns uh, based on, you know, uh, and I can't recall the debt to income ratio, but, you know, I mean, you can look at. Yeah, how are you going to pay this? It, lady? Yeah, how are you going to pay? You can't, it certainly couldn't be more than what she's making. You care so, about her ability to repay. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, both, you know, because, you know, again, if we don't want to, if we want to end up with property in Interlocking, I'll buy the place next door. Yeah. I mean, I, that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to, you know, have an, you know, grow our uh, portfolio by, you know, another $20,000 or whatever. And, you know, and have uh, uh, payments coming in each month that uh, that were not, you know, a month late or two months late, you know. And um, so I got a call from her not long after the documents would have been recorded at the Register of Deeds. Uh, you know, became public record that she said, um, I, I think I'll use the name because they're no longer around, that AmeriQuest mm. uh, just called her yeah. and said that she's wasting her equity. And I said, oh, I said, well, you know what? You know, I said, well, you're not locked in and I don't think you even have a prepayment penalty. I said, what are they offering? Well, they're going to loan me uh, $125,000. And I said, well, you know, that's 125% of the value. Well, they're saying that, you know, their appraiser can get it appraised for 150 and it's, you know, and it's really worth that. And I said, okay, well, you know, I said, we just had someone look at it and, you know, this is what it is, but maybe, you know, maybe she put an addition on it. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I knew what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, you know, again, and I said, well, you know, and, and also they're offering a lower rate. Well, what's their rate? this. I said, well, are you sure it's not adjustable? Well, they told me it was fixed. I said, yeah, but they probably said fixed. And then, you know, maybe on the documents, it's fixed the first few years. And I said, you know, I said, I'm not saying anybody double talked. I haven't seen the papers, but I said, here's where you, you know, you might want to find out whether it's like a, a teaser rate that's fixed. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, it's a lost cause because what this woman is Free saying. Money. Exactly. That's what, you know, so, so lo and behold, uh, we get a request for a payoff letter. We, you know, send the payoff letter to the title company and we, we get a check. So a lot of, you know, this is, you know, while this is a, you know, a, an example that comes to mind, there, there, what, what, what we call that is runoff. You make a loan and then, you know, it, it pays off. Or even something that you made a couple of years ago, which was designed to be maybe a two-year loan until the person had more time on the job and could qualify conventionally. Or you made a loan to an investor that they were going to fix up the home and sell. I mean, that was their whole business plan. So you've got some of your portfolio is constantly running off. The bigger the portfolio gets, the more naturally is running off. And then you've got this enhanced runoff because of the aggressive telemarketing from the bigger subprime players. 
And, you know, so it was very difficult to grow. Um, there were a lot of, you know, I mean, but there was more and more equity and more and more people wanting. I mean, so there were deals. We were able to do deals, but there were challenges in those times, too. It wasn't utopia. Now, um, you know, so I, I'll, I'll finish that story unless you want to go something else chronologically. No, but no. I'll tell you how this one finished up. So sure enough, we know what happens after 2000, 2007, 2008 yeah. um, is that the bottom fell out. So I, I think I got a call from the same woman, um, you know, that, you know, she wasn't able to meet her obligations and what would happen. And I said, well, you know, this will, you know, I said, you can either sell it if you've got equity. You can try see if someone will refinance. Would you do it? I said, well, I don't think we can, you can afford the payment. You'd be welcome to apply, first thing I said. Yeah. Um, but um, you you know, if, what do you owe now? Well, she didn't make her payment. She owes even more. And, you know, I said, well, what's it worth? There wasn't a lot of equity. The payments would have been really high, you know, so I don't think she even applied. Um, and, you know, so I didn't really know what happened. And then a couple of years later, um, I got a call from her and she was sort of upset. She says, I'm, you know, my redemption period just ended. I'm going to lose, you know, the, the place. And it's all because of these big, bad mortgage companies and, and banks. And I said, well, you know, I said, well, what happened? I said, you know, Ameriquest? Oh, no, no, that was three loans ago. I, I Now I owe GMAC. And and um, oh, I man. said, oh, okay. You know, I said, well, um, you know, what's going to, you know, what do you owe now? Well, the redemption is this. I said, what's the place worth? Well, it's come back a little bit in value, but it's not worth that much. Aren't they terrible? And I said, well, you know, I said, maybe you, you know, I said, maybe you'll feel better if you look at it from a different perspective. I said, um, you feel like you're a victim. And I said, you know, there might maybe, you know, if you just look at it from another perspective, you won't feel like you were victimized. And I said to her, um, you know, if you would have sold the property at the top of the market, um, you know, depending on your situation, you might have had to pay capital gains. Uh, maybe not, but, you know, you certainly, you would have had the same amount of money, less whatever commission, um, but you wouldn't have the use of the property. I said, in your, you know, situation, um, you got all the money, you got to use the property until like two weeks from now, and you didn't have to pay any taxes on it. So maybe if you just looked at it that you won, you know, maybe you'll sleep a little better. I said, I, you know, I said, that's just, you know, another way of looking at it. Oh, geez, thank you so much for explaining it to me that way. So <laughs> you I explained I, it very nicely. Yeah. Too, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, now a, nice a more, a more cynical person sitting yeah. across from me yeah. could say uh -huh. that, yeah, I mean, there certainly was a lack of borrower responsibility. Yeah. Um, but river, yeah, but I mean, I think you've got two instances, you know, what gets a lot of play is that, you know, these subprime companies that are out of business, and it certainly would be true if you say that there was greed involved. Absolutely. But I think on the borrower side, there was, you know, the same, you know, trait of, of greed involved is that they wanted the money. Many of them, you know, were, if there were instances of mortgage fraud, um, it was probably, you know, some of the. I, I would say there's an argument to be that, you know, it was mutual, you know, if, if, you know, if the income that she told me, you know, if, that we computed a payment with and what was told to, you know, maybe AmeriQuest and GMAC to qualify for this big loan later. I mean, I, I, I know from talking to this lady, she wasn't dumb. She may not have had a, 
you know, a PhD from, you know, uh, Wharton, <laughs> but I mean, she had a lot of street smarts and she knew money. She yeah. knew, you know, and, um, and, and she knew when to play not so smart. I mean, dumb like a fox. So I think in this case, I mean, you know, she, I think in, in, in the beginning, she, I mean, she respected me for, you know, doing a loan that she could afford, but she, you know, she was disappointed. She wanted more money and she found a place that would give her more money. And then she learned how to do it the next time. And, but then, you know, she thought playing the card of a victim would, would be fine. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, she probably would have preferred to be able to keep it because you hear about other people where they write things off or the bank walks away. Um, but I think it, I, I felt sort of good that she still trusted me for, you know, for an opinion. And at the end of the day, you know, if that helped her sleep better, great. Um, but I think, you know, I think you have to look at some consumer and borrower responsibility too. Absolutely. If you're, especially since she had that conversation with you, she can't pretend like she didn't know. And you, you point all that out to her. So, so somehow you just basically didn't take the bait at all. 2002 to 2008. Well, you've been the market long enough. You knew we, we were still impacted. I mean, we felt pressure uh, to increase, you know, loan to value, you know, based on what competitors were doing. We, for the most part, uh, dug in our heels because, you know, things just didn't make business sense. I mean, we had boots on the ground and we could see, um, but particularly on smaller loans, uh, you know, on lower value properties, uh, where you look at, you know, if somebody does default and, you know, I mean, we always looked at it from a common sense perspective. Let's say, you know, like we talked about this deal earlier on the land contract. If somebody owes us, you know, $30,000 and the house is worth 50, that's a 60% loan to value. Okay. Let's say they fall behind, you know, they lose their job or they both lose the job, husband and wife. And, you know, and then so and then the house, you know, they couldn't afford the taxes either. So as long as all their, you know, their brains working, they're thinking rationally. OK, so they sell the house for 45. They pay a commission. They can solve the problem. They'll still walk away with roughly 10 grand, pay us off, you know, and then go buy or rent something else. We you know, we, we nobody gets hurt. You know, and, and the more than likely if things are going up in value, you know, there's even no, or they keep their jobs. So we always thought, okay, you know, that we wouldn't be impacted because the borrowers will solve the problem themselves. The rare cases that there was when things were good, a case of, uh, of a default or something where the borrower didn't fuck. Uh, solve the problem themselves was when people weren't thinking clearly. Sometimes, you know, in an emotional state, maybe in a divorce where marriage is dissolving, um, you know, they're not thinking business-wise. It's he won't pay, so she won't pay. I mean, they're spiting each other. And, you know, yeah, that's and, not good. well, you know, or, you know, or sometimes it's the other thing. I, you know, somebody, they inherit another house or they win the lotto and they, you know, it's not really, okay, well, I, I'm just going to move. I'm going to walk away and everything. Um, you know, but it was very rare that if the business side of it made sense that somebody would lose a home. Well, you know, when the market went bad, you had people losing their jobs and you had the market declining much more than anyone pr would project it. So if let's say you had a $40,000 house that we now a $20,000 house uh, or a 50,000 in this example I gave you where maybe we loaned 30 and then that one went down to 25 um, um, you know, we're impacted. And then also, you know, an attorney charges the same amount on a $500,000 default action as he would on a 25000 
Uh, if the municipality has to cut the grass because no one else is cutting the grass, bear in mind, I don't have permission to go on the property until, yeah. until the whole procedure is done. Um, the municipality is going to charge the same amount or pay the same person overtime to cut it, um, you know, regardless of the value. So you've got, you know, the balance going up, the value going down. So there were instances we were darn glad that we weren't more aggressive like some of our competitors that went out of business. And one of the reasons we're still here is we were conservative. Did you do the I told you dance? I might have. I told you. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, there were some, um, you know, some instances where we were impact. I mean, you know, and it was... And even like my dad, you know, he mentioned that there would be cycles that he saw through the 70s. Even in the 70s, he had high interest rates, but you didn't have steep value decline. One is because they hadn't spiked up before that. But I think, you know, it was something that, you know, I, I certainly hadn't seen before. And I'm glad, you know, we survived. Um, but then once the economy, uh, oh, and then the other thing I had a, 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 a spinal fusion in 2007. So it was a good time to have it because as I was convalescing, things were in free fall. And, um, you know, and so it was a good time for us to take a time out because I wasn't working for four to six weeks. And, um, you know, it was as things were in free fall and we didn't know where that bottom was going to be. So we stopped originating new loans for a little while. And then when things did stabilize, we went in, you know, at a, at a lower loan to value, um, you know, with with even tighter criteria as far as repayment ability. Um, and then um, as things started to recover, then we had a, a huge change in regulation. Um, so the world changed again, but at least we'd seen, you know, a huge change and it was a little easier to adapt to the change in regulation because we saw, you know, the economic change before it. And I, you know, just life constantly changes. And, um, you know, I, you know, as you get older, it's easier to accept, but, it, you know, and and it's a lot easier to talk about now because I'm not in the midst of it. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's still, you know, times that, uh, you know, you reminisce and like, you know, uh, based on the, you know, the way things were, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd be able to do a lot of things different, you know, that I can't do now. But uh, does that mean I'm going to, you know, circumvent or no? I mean, no. I am who I am and um, we've got to deal with the rules and the, the cards were dealt. So well, to you're speak. a grizzly veteran, too. It's, it, I still feel like live, a kid. You know. We're all going to live long enough to see a lot of change. And like uh, like the quote that I, that I start with, most people would rather die than change <laughs> by Ann Rand is, I catch myself there sometimes, too. That's something I have to constantly remind myself to, to let go of. There's nothing wrong with change. Life is change. So, so you survived 2002. And actually, I shouldn't say 2008. For those listening, and, and for America, it was 2008. For Michigan, it was 2007. Yeah. It came early. It came early. I remember in June, having just moved here in May, having something like 13, 14 projects going, and literally by August 1st being fucking broke. Just like, I mean, July was the worst month. July of 2007 was the worst month of my professional career. Um, uh, well, I don't know about that. Maybe there's some other worst months. But that's right at the very top. It just literally crashed down. So 2007, I should say 2002 to 2007, um, but 2008 for, for the rest of the country. And then for those who don't know, uh, in Michigan, um, Alan was talking about redemption in Michigan, after a borrower ceases paying and it goes into foreclosure, and after the court comes down on the gavel and says, okay, you've lost your home in Michigan, 
if it's a mortgage, they have six months after the foreclosure to redeem the property. It'd be whatever was owed plus fees and everything else like that. So for, for those who are listening in Europe, um, not every state has redemption. I don't think there should be redemption, but Michigan has six-month redemption for mortgages, three-month redemption, or I should say 180 days for a mortgage, 90 days for a land contract, correct? Well, yeah, mortgage is six months. They actually use months. In they that. say six months. And, okay. and, it, and there are some mortgages, uh, generally it's limited to agricultural properties where it's a year. And that comes back from the old farming days yeah. where they'd be able to uh, harvest their, their crops. Um, and so you've, you, again, there is a need for a lawyer. You don't want to do that yourselves because you do have, you know, different redemption periods. Um, and on a land contract, generally it's 90 days. However, uh, it is dependent on the amount of equity. If they've got it more than half paid for, like this one you talked about, it, in that case, it's 180 days. Ooh, that's so, good to know. Yeah. I did not know that. So just yeah. if you're listening, that's what redemption period yeah. means and all that. So, okay. So let's fast forward to 2015. I met you and. It was 2010 or 11. I think it might have been a little later than that. I think it was uh, 10. Well, it might have been 11. And then um, the reason I know is August 29, 2011 was when the SAFE Act final rule uh, became effective. See how uh, I did? See, you know, yeah, that's how you uh, remember. <laughs> yeah. So it was probably hardcore, it was man. probably 2012 when we met. And then I think it was the beginning of 13, the January meeting where I did the presentation at, at RDI. So, um, you know, it's it's been uh, almost four years now because we're close to, to 16. Um, you know, so uh, anyway, yeah, that's what, when we so met. What, what are you doing in your business now? Um what are you doing in your business now that works that you like, you know? Well, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll try to pick out three things. Uh, one, uh, one of the items is, uh, you know, we're still looking for, you know, we, we've identified some niches that might be ignored uh, by, by others. And one of the spaces, and again, you've got to find a, a need, but one of the spaces is residential landlords that uh, own a number of properties uh, that, that are otherwise qualified for conventional mortgages, but are sort of cut off by the number of loans that the secondary market investors will allow them. I think right now that number is 10. So let's say you've got someone who's, uh, you know, good credit risk. They manage their properties well, uh, and they can walk into their bank or credit union and get a loan. But once they have, you know, whether it's 10, whether it's two dozen, whatever, um, they they have uh, borrowed all essentially all the cheap money they can borrow, and at that point, if they want to continue to buy rental properties, they have two choices. One is to try to find sellers that'll offer seller financing, or the other is to put those rent checks in the bank to build up their savings to be a cash buyer. So um, what what we've done uh, is you know. We haven't done a great job at identifying all of them, but we, uh, we you know, we we have some very good borrowers who are residential la- landlords that are in that space where you know they've exhausted all the opportunity to borrow conventionally, and but yet they're not big enough to be like um, I'll use the name Donald Trump uh, to be able to go into the commercial department of their bank and get a seven-figure loan, so and you know so somebody needs you know. Two, three hundred thousand secured by, you know, four or six rental properties. Um, you know, we can do that to give them money to buy more, or maybe to put 
you know, maybe some of their properties need new driveways or roofs. So we'll do loans uh, for business purpose to professional landlords uh, so that they can acquire and maintain and improve uh, more properties. Now we are, uh, you know, we do verify that, you know, not only don't they live in the properties, but also that it is a business purpose, uh, that they're not using the money to take a trip around the world or to put their kids uh, through <laughs> Harvard or whatever, yeah. because that would be considered personal family or household use. So there is still a compliance aspect. Um, the other thing we'll do, and this would be two of the three, um, is we still do buy land contracts or notes or, you know, the IOUs. Yeah. Um, Secured and, IOUs. Yeah, um, but but those are harder to find. Uh, and when we do, one, there just isn't a whole lot of them being, you know, generated. There aren't a whole lot of sellers selling on land contract. And, and then also there are some new regulations um, that we can go over later if you want. Um, dealing with land contracts origination, yeah. and so it's it's uh, harder, or it, the degree of difficulty has increased to determine whether these land contracts were originated in a compliant manner. Meaning, you know, did they follow the law? Um, and uh, so we, for us to determine that, and there's a higher risk, obviously, if they weren't compliant. And um, you know, we have to look at all the other good business reasons too. All right, sorry. That's a battery. Yep, we're going to go ahead and... Sorry about this, guys. It will get better as we go. All right, we are back. Okay. Yes. start this real quick. There you go. Okay. Yeah, so we are still buying contracts and... um, you know, and then so the loans to uh, real estate uh, landlords will also loan to investors uh, that, you know, are, are buying, uh, fixing and selling. Um, you, you could use the term flip, but I tend to avoid the four letter F word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just because there was a connotation during that uh, you know, growth period yeah. that there that it was fraudulent um, because, you know, there were some players that used you know, didn't really do the work. They'd just get an appraiser or somebody to say. How many have you seen with that one-inch brick veneer just on the front of the house? Well, for the the front photo, yeah. Yeah. The roof Um, done on the front of the house. Yeah, so, I mean, so there was, um, you know, some some fraud uh, going on at at that time. But, um, you know, but for generally, for people doing things the, the right way, sometimes they find themselves property rich and cash poor. They may have... You know, properties in inventory that they have a couple of choices. One would be, uh, you know, to slash the price, um, you know, because they need cash for another deal. Or the other might be, you know, they, they own the property free and clear is that, you know, we could do a, a, a loan on that. And uh, so just like the loan to the landlord where it doesn't fit that square peg and square hole. So we are loaning to landlords and investors. Uh, we are buying contracts. And then um, through the years, we've also um, occasionally someone um, might be a mistake that they call us. Uh, I mean, not a mistake that we're the wrong person to call, but they might have misunderstood uh, the ad that says we buy land contracts and say, oh, would, would you buy my house? Well, I'm not going to you know, spend an hour explaining the difference between a land contract purchase and buying a house. Um, you know, I might say, well, you know, yeah, your house is for sale. What, you know, what's your situation and talk to them. And, you know, if it's someone that's, you know, open to the idea of selling to a non-retail buyer, um, you know, where they're, you know, where maybe they've got, you know, inherited the house, they don't, they live in another state, uh, or the house, you know, it needs a lot of work and they, you know, don't have the 
uh, resources to be able to do that work or they're, you know, I mean, we do buy, uh, in, you know, properties, uh, for investment purposes as well. Okay, um, I about that. Do you guys, um, so do you have rentals? And- we, we don't have rentals ourselves. So if, if uh, so <coughs> excuse me, it, or- yeah, I mean, if something, um, you know, if somebody calls, uh, we would either work with uh, someone, you know, a licensed builder to, to renovate. See, there's that license word again, um, to, to renovate the home and then maybe we'd retail it. Or, you know, perhaps we'd buy it um, and then, you know, uh, maybe sell it to a landlord or, you know, or someone that, you know, has a crew to do the work um, on that. And it, again, it's going to be deal by deal. And and it's not a huge um, focus of our business, but, um, you know, it is something. We we have some real estate knowledge. Um, some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we, we have some capital and uh, we're... I guess one of the things we don't have is uh, some construction expertise. So, um, you know, so we, that, and we don't, um, and I, I don't have a management team for rent, you know, for rental management. So, um, you know, if there's a way that we can use what we do have and, and, um, you know, and find other players in the, in the business that, you know, can use their skills. So, so like I said, if we buy and then maybe, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll pay a builder, you know, to fix up for us and then we'll retail it. Or maybe there's someone that, you know, is a, a rehabber that, uh, you know, perhaps we, we bought the property and then we'll, we'll sell it to that person that's either going to rent it out or resell it themselves after, you know, fixing up to, to today's standards. Okay, you know, well, both I don't aesthetically. want to make wait to the end too. So if somebody was interested in doing this, how would they, how would they contact you? The easiest thing is to just call me 248-335-6166. Once again, 248-335-6166. Um, that's our office number. If it goes to voicemail, the system will send me an email um, that there's a voicemail in the system. So you, you, you may get a call quicker than you anticipate if you call at 3 a.m. and I'm up. Yeah. Um, but um, they can also email uh, Alan, A-L-L-A-N, Daniels, D-A-N-I-E-L-S at gmail.com is the easiest email to use because it's just first, ma- first name, last name. And, and I will um, put all this in the show notes too, but I have to. You do have a cash for landcontracts.com. That's cash, just the number yeah. four. Landcontracts.com. It's a global economy, Alan. We got okay, yeah. We, you could get some European yeah, 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 We've got our website, yeah. and there's yeah. a form there. And then we also have a drdanielsonson.com website that uh, is in need and in process of upgrading. But uh, either website, you'll find a way to contact me and my information. Or you can just Google Alan Daniels, spelled A-L-L-A-N, Daniels, D-A-N-I-E-L-S. You've been in business 20-plus years successfully. You're a, what I call a grizzly veteran. We kind of know how you got started. We know what you did before. We know what you're working on now. Um, successful people have success. Successful habits, right? That's as I like to identify. Um, identify these habits. I did not grow up with successful people. I was not around successful people. I didn't have good role models for, for success. So kind of one of the things I've been doing since I got my ass kicked twice is I try, I try and look for success habits. And I, I'm assuming I'm not the only one who wasn't exposed to. Now, some of the habits I was exposed to made me very successful. And then, but it's kind of like having an incomplete game. So Alan Daniels wakes up in the morning, ready to conquer the world. What the, did you have a morning routine? What do you do when you wake up in the morning? I know you have 
a, a physical routine. You, you're actually you and Chris Mosier have got me uh, in better shape, the best shape I've ever been in my life watching you guys. But but what is your what is your morning routine? What does your routine look like? Your success routine? Well, I I, I wish I had a better routine, but um, I, I I stretch every morning, and um, some mornings I'm better than others at at exercising. But uh, I find that you know the stretching helps. I. I I do have a vice, which is uh, caffeine, so I, you know, I'll, I'll definitely have my coffee, and I usually have a protein bar or something for breakfast and some fruit. Um, I, I over the, I, I think I'm more of a morning person than a, you know, than a night owl. So on, you know, my best days, I'm up and running early. Um, but what I, time do you wake up? I usually, well, you know, probably around six. Um, you know, it's, it's sometimes dependent on the, what's going on with the school year That's and so forth. For okay. okay. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it depends on the, on the school year. And then of course, if I've got to be in Lansing early in the morning for a meeting or something, you know, it could be five. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think it, it varies depending on what I've got scheduled. Sometimes, you know, you may have, um, let's say if you were only free to do this at seven thirty. I, you know, I'm in a family business. Uh, we're we're not necessarily nine to five, and um, you know, if if there's something that could potentially help, you know, earn a living, and it's going to be you know an evening or a weekend appointment, um, you know, I might not be at the gym. I might not be you know at home at a certain hour. I may be in next early. I may be in you know late. So um, you know, so the the routine may vary based on on demand. And I think that might be a habit is that, you know, uh, you know, is to be somewhat flexible. Um, and and I think my, uh, for the most part, my family understands. Now, it was a little bit, uh, as my wife and I were dating, you know, a little bit of a, a challenge. Uh, she grew up, her father uh, was, was a school teacher and, you know, a very good school teacher. Um, but, you know, the, I, I think the best way to bring out this uh, difference, it, you know, wasn't unusual for me growing up that my dad got home, you know, after seeing patients all day, and then he'd be on the phone, you know, in the evening with the office manager talking about, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it was who paid their bill, or maybe it's about how many appointments the next day, or, or you know, what, uh, how the, an interview with a potential hygienist went, or, you know, so it was, it was, you know, work, the workday didn't end at home, uh, and it was just something I observed. So I remember my wife and I, um, I don't know if we were engaged at the time, but we went to, to Disney World. Uh, it was before we got married, and, you know, it was early enough that I didn't carry a cell phone, although they were probably were in bags at the time. Suitcase. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but um, we had a, a thing that was sort of advanced at the time called voicemail, but you had to call into a number to go listen to your voicemails. So we're in line for Space Mountain or something. And I said, you know, wait in line. I'm going to go call my voicemail. And so I go to a payphone at Disney World. And, you know, I'm writing down my voicemails. And then I figure, you know, I'm going to call people hey, back the cutting edge while we're in line. And she says, you know, we're on vacation. I'm like, well, yeah, but we're just in line now. You know, I, I, it didn't, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary for me. But I can see, you know, if, you know, whether it was military family or, you know, or an educational family, you know, it wasn't something where, you know, in the summertime you're taking a vacation. That would be different maybe if you're teaching summer school. But, you know, under most circumstances, 
And I do realize, you know, my father-in-law watched this, but I do realize that teaching doesn't end. There's papers to grade. There's preparation for the coming year. So I there's don't. There's a mean, difference between being an employee and a business owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that you know. So I. So is there a routine? Well, the routine is just be ready for that life. And I think it might have been a little easier for me because I. I sort of saw that. On the other hand, you know, some people may go the other direction where they see then like, I don't want to ever be on the phone, you know, when I could be, you know, you know, you know, playing, you know, doing something else at the time. Um, so um, I think, you know, being flexible uh, would be one. I think still, you know, the first phone call of the day, I'm still, you know, I, it's not quite as bad as, you know, looking in the yellow pages and picking up that phone the first time. But I still, you know, you have to prepare for that first phone call because whatever, you know, whether, you know, if you picked up a coffee on the way in or a Diet Coke and it spilled on your, you know, or in the in the car, on the console, or, you know, or something else didn't go right, you know, uh, in the morning uh, or whatever's on your mind, you got to get your mind clear and remember to smile when you're on the phone and, and, you know, get back to basics. So that first phone call, you know, it's like I played a lot of sports and I still play softball. You know, it's like getting in the batter's box, trying to, to get ready or, you know, rubbing up that baseball before you pitch. So, you know, you try to prepare. On the other hand, there's a constant challenge and I'm going every which way here, but, you know, when you're in a, a family business or your own business, um, the, you have, it's very, the constant challenge between working on the business and working in the business. I work in the business, but I'm also responsible for working on the business. This is a great point. I'm glad you brought this up. I didn't write this down. Yeah. So, um, you know, so what are you, you know, working on the, I mean, so, and it can change at a moment's notice. I mean, I, I'm working in the business trying to produce, you know, so I'm making phone calls, checking emails, you know, responding, trying to multitask, got a deal, talking to a title company, whatever. And the Internet goes down. Okay, so, you know, what do you do? I mean, somebody's got to call Comcast. You got limited people. Maybe, you know, I might be the only one here or, you know, or, or if there's someone else here, you know, they're, they're doing something else that can be done maybe without Internet. Uh, and, you know, we've got a portable hotspot, we'll fire that up, but it's like dial-up speed. And, you know, you know, so you've got to deal with these things. I, you know, I remember meeting a realtor at, at Kirby's when there was a power outage one time, you know, so you're on yourself, you know, so I mean, you've got to adapt. Uh, you got to be here when the Comcast guy comes if it's not a area outage. So you got to deal with, with all these things. So I think it, it's a mindset. Um and you don't always know what's happening. It, it you know, I, I um, in the, the sports, um, I played three sports in high school. I was good at two of them, but I was uh, <laughs> uh, good. I, Sounds I, like me. I was good at one. <laughs> I was uh, fortunate enough to be on a very good soccer team, and I uh, was the goalkeeper, and I was uh, honorable mention All-State as a goalkeeper. I played basketball in the winter, and I sat at the end of the bench and got in a few games. I joked that uh, I... Uh, Played um, a lot of basketball on Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, but the games were <laughs> Tuesdays and Fridays. Yeah. <laughs> but I really felt, you know, a part of the team because I made those starters work hard on the days that I was, you know, the 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 uh, the, the scout team. 
Um, and then baseball, I was a decent pitcher and played center field when I didn't pitch. Um, but but the goal, but the analogy was the the goalkeeping and and the pitching. I mean, you don't know in those situations what might happen. I mean, you you practice and you know you practice penalty shots, you practice you know other things, but you don't know whether somebody's going to come on a three on two or you're, somebody's going to have a breakaway. You don't know whether you know the guy in your own team is going to head the ball into the net. That happened to me. Uh, you don't know whether that same guy in the same game, this happened my junior year of high school, has a handball in the box, which creates a penalty kick. And then you're lucky enough, you you know, because penalty kick, you really just guess what it's side guess. you're going to go yeah, to. It's a huge guess. But I mean, and then you got to get lucky enough that you got a piece of it. So I, I guessed and I got a hand on it, picked up the ball, and the guy that caused the penalty cup penalty kick comes up and hugs me and I'm thinking get away from me you're going to touch the ball again you know so uh, you know so I mean it's uh you know he you know I mean he's think, just reacting but I mean it's I remember that till the day I die but uh but but also pitching I mean you you could make the best pitch and you know guy hits it well so I think you know sports is a good analogy because it tells you to be ready to react um the goalkeeping the pitching and then also um you know, and my son plays tennis, but I think, you know, with pitching and tennis, there's a couple, of, and I was a junk baller, I didn't have a really good fastball. So it was a lot of thinking and, and uh, you know, maybe, you know, where are they, where do they think you're going to throw it and hopefully you can hit a spot somewhere else or, um, you know, they're looking for a fastball, you're throwing a curve, you know, or you're, you know, they're looking for the slow curve and then makes your fastball look even faster. Um so I so I think with with business, you know, you're you're trying to think like looking for our niches. Okay, well, what's everybody else doing? Um, you know, and then am I worried about saying what we're doing now on on the internet? Well, yeah, I mean, it could create more competition, but it could also create opportunity that there's people looking. So I think um, you know, one of the things I'm focusing now a little bit more is networking for your group and other groups um, because that's you know better way to find our target market than um perhaps the newspaper because nobody gets it yeah, <laughs> so nobody, yeah. That, that's that's yeah. going to be one of yeah. the questions i i i asked was what are you and obviously please don't give away some uh, trade secret yeah 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 but what are you doing to generate leads you just mentioned one thing right uh, i'm going to come back to some success habits real quick too but you brought it up okay what are you doing to generate leads how are you generating leads well i i don't think there's any secret sauce i think um you know anyone in this industry really uh, you know knows what the the basics are and some people do a little better job of it and i think there's people that do a lot better job of it than i do as far as internet marketing and you know whether it what do they call it drip marketing with your newsletter and all that i mean i know about all these things but again it's where do you find the time to implement everything when you're also you know the phone rings what are you going to do let it go to aunt, to voicemail because i'm you know working on my newsletter right now so what does and get finished the newsletter um you know and and you know you try to create more hours um but but you do the best but i think what's worked effectively for us is um you know is the one-on-one and and talking to people um and letting them know what we do and and then people it and i think part of it might be my dad's background in dentistry because people will say um they hate their dentist 
But my dad said his patients liked him. Well, why? Because if they didn't like him, they didn't come back. Yeah. Absolutely. And and also, you know, he solved the need for them. <laughs> you know, I mean, either whether it was, you know, make if they wanted a nicer smile, it was that, or whether they were in pain and he relieved the pain. So it's the same here. I mean, people don't particularly like investors or, uh, you know, or, or, or lenders. Um, but, you know, if someone, you know, especially a real estate investor or landlord has a need for capital and then they, you know, find that, you know, they can carry on a conversation with someone and that may also have a creative mind and, you know, they can brainstorm ideas and it, it's, it's sort of fun and you're doing business. So I think, you know, that's what, you know, it's just sort of talking to people, which isn't a, a secret sauce or, you know, what is it, uh, the Colonel's secret recipe? Being open yeah, helps yeah. too, right? Yeah. 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 So, I, so I don't know um, if there's anything I could pinpoint that's proprietary, um, but what I'm trying to do a little more consciously is to you know, is to get out there a little more. And, um, and you do a lot of networking. I, I watch you, you network a lot. So I know that had to be one of the many ways I'm sure. Yeah. Although, you know, the question in two is, is, you know, trying to maximize the, the return on that. Um, you know, sometimes you're, uh, you know, you're networking with people that, um, you know, it, it might not be the right audience. Um, but, you know, it, it, we're fishing and we're looking for needles and haystacks, all of us. And if you can find, you know, that one fish, you know, that, that works, um, you know, that, that'll feed your family or whatever. And then, you know, the, the other thing is, um, you know, real estate investors and landlords tend to be somewhat loyal. I mean, if you're rehabbing a house and you have an electrician you work with and he shows up when he's supposed to show up, you, you usually most, you're only going to make this mistake once where you, you know, somebody says, I'll do your electrical for, you know, for less money. And then you find out the hard way, well, it's less money, but that person didn't show up on Monday when he was supposed to. And you had the drywaller scheduled to come Tuesday. And now because the electrician didn't come in, now you're, you you, you don't want to close that wall up because you got to have you know, reliable will get you a long way. In yeah. Business. So it's the same thing with the source of capital. Um, you know, if someone, you know, if, if you find that you work well with someone and, and, you know, it, it works, are you going to try something new and untested? Because, you know, maybe it's, you know, 99 cents cheaper. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe not. But Probably but not, but no. usually you're going to be you know happy because it's it's good enough even without an extra ninety nine cents in the deal. It's cheaper to keep your current customers than it is to go get new yeah, ones yeah. all the time, right? Yeah. So retention. you know, so, so the that, retention must be really high. Well, we we try, and then also I learned at a young age, um, and this probably wasn't on your list of questions that, um, uh, you know, sometimes um, you know. If you can't do something, it's best to let not someone know, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, I had a situation, this is another anecdote, early in my career, I was, you know, definitely, you know, younger than 30 and maybe even younger than 25. Um, it was a pretty experienced real estate developer that came in. Uh, it was this table, but it was probably in another uh, building at the time. This table, was yeah, same conference table? room. Yeah. All right, that's yeah. cool. Same a little history. Yeah. yeah. So we're we're on the table. Yeah. Did I? Yeah. And uh, this was in the old dental office administrative building. You know, um, it, they. So it's from like around eighty, eighty three, maybe or no. I'm sorry. This table. Uh, anyway, eighty seven. I'd say. Okay. okay. Um, 
but the point I was trying to make before I digressed <laughs> was that um, experienced developer developed a lot of subdivisions and everything. Uh, I think we had bought a land contract from his ex-wife, and that's how he got our name. He was looking for financing for the infrastructure for this 120 acres he bought up in uh, southern Genesee County. I think it was in Davison. And so what that would be for the roads, the underground utilities, everything. And then he was going to get about 80 lots. And, um, you know, and I told him, I said, you know, this is really, you know, sort of complicated. It's like a construction loan, there's a lot of things like mechanics liens and things that could go wrong, and some of which I don't even know about, some of which I've read in books like the term I just mentioned. And I said, it's, you know, it, it's it's too complicated for us. I said, we could either make a loan on this, the raw land based on what you paid since it was on the open market, or once you have those 80 lots, then we could look at each one of those as worth and then figure out a loan to value and loan on those. And, you know, pretty sternly, you know, he got up or stoically, I should say, rolled up his blueprints that he had laid out over the table. And, you know, we shook hands and he walked out and, you know, and I'm like, you know, this didn't end, you know, it was a handshake, but not, you know, like a deal. And, um, you know, so I didn't really know. So then, um, you know, probably at least a couple of years later, you know, I got a call, same guy says, he going to be in the office? I said, yeah, you know, can I stop by around whatever time? I said, sure. You know, so he comes in and he's got, um, something that I would say would, you know, right in our sweet spot. It was a free and clear property. Uh, he had excellent income. It was his second home. Uh, it was on Lake Huron up in the thumb area. And, it, you know, I, uh, like a three story, beautiful home. We wanted to borrow, uh, in the very low six figures, like a hundred thousand on it. It was probably worth, you know, much, much more than that. And, um, you know, so I, you know, we met our criteria. We did the loan very quickly. And, um, at the closing, you know, after everything, the ink was dry and everything, I asked him, I said, well, what made you call me? And he says, it's because you said no to me the last time. And I said, you know, I was a little older, but not a lot older. And I said, I said, you know, I, I haven't heard that as a reason before. <laughs> I said, I wish you know, I worked on the dating scene. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so he said, well, he said, you know, what you told me in, uh, you know, in 15 minutes the first time we met, um, you know, if I would have gone to, you know, a uh, regular mortgage broker would have taken six weeks because yeah. they would have said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would have called all their investors yeah. and I would have called, how's it going? They would say, fine, fine, fine. And then they it would have come back in the same answer. That's exactly how and I said, been. well, I probably could have told you in five minutes, but I was sort of nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said, but when I had something that I knew was, you know, sort of your bread and butter, um, you know, I figured it would be just as efficient and it would get done. And, you know, he was at the time he was building a mini storage. And uh, so he needed some, you know, working capital that he borrowed on that property he owned up on the, in the thumb area to finish the mini storage. And, you know, so that's why time was of the essence. Now, bear in mind with Dodd-Frank, we couldn't do that today because it's no, a second man. home, even yeah. though it was business purpose. We'd probably, you know, because it was a second home and not a true investment property. I'll put you in real estate jail. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it wouldn't be worth uh, the the risk. And, um, you know, and we'd err on the side of caution. There might be others that would do it. Um, but now today, I think, uh, you know, it's the, the degree of difficulty is a little higher. But, um, you know, but what I did learn from there is, um, you know, that, you know, the even if the news is not good, 
uh, you know, be honest, you know, deliver it because, you know, that in the, in the end is, is going to benefit you. So it's the same. It is related to networking is that, you know, even though you may talk to someone, uh, and it, you know, you, you may just meet them in passing at an event or something. You know, if you try to, you know, be yourself, treat them with the respect, have the conversation, let them know what you do. You know, you don't know who they'll talk to or, um, you know, that they may two, three years later remember you because either you were, you know, maybe you were a jerk or maybe, you know, you were genuine. And we all have our moments. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you do, um, you know, have a bad day and, you know, sometimes people are like oil and water. So you're not going to, uh, you know, win friend and influence everyone to paraphrase uh, Dale Carnegie, but you try to do the right thing. Okay. So how, what, what numbers do you track in your business? So like, how do you know that you're doing the right thing day in, day out? Like, do you track numbers or there's there goals you're trying to hit? I know you mentioned a few things where you're looking to increase, what do you call it? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not 100 about the size of the portfolio. Size, yeah, yeah, increase the size of your portfolio, right? Yeah. So, so how do you, what, what are you uh, tracking? Well, I, I think first and foremost um, are the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I think, you, you know, we're, in the morning, yeah, we're, we're keeping the lights sign. on and, um, you know, and, and so I think it, it, it's really, you know, uh, basic. Um, I mean, we're, you know, we're fortunate we do have a full-time bookkeeper and I, I, I get some reports as far as, um, our, you know, portfolio, uh, each week, um, you know, I, I, uh, get a report as far as, uh, you know, just like a landlord would have, you know, who's paid and who hasn't. And, and, uh, because I know everybody, I, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll call somebody up or maybe somebody called me and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in Tuesday or, or I'm going to, you know, something's in the mail or, or, or whichever. But I mean, we try to keep a, a close eye on everything. So I think that would be a lesson is, you know, we, you know, you, you have to really track everything, but if you're, you know, if if the cash flow coming in is something that your business is dependent on, you can't just, you know, ignore when people are not meeting their obligations. So, um, you know, you, you need to do that. Uh, the other thing you need to track is that are you making progress of what's in your pipeline? And by pipeline, you know, is deals in progress. So, um, you know, you, you know, is, you know, like we've got a closing coming up Friday, um, you know, title works ordered. Um, you know, our document's going to get done in time. You know, I, in this case, I'm not going to be able to be at the closing. So I'm going to need them probably by Wednesday to get them FedExed and, you know, so that they're there for, a, a, you know, maybe Thursday would work, but they've got to be there for a morning Friday closing, some of which they need originals. So we've got to keep on it. You know, we've got to track, you know, and this isn't necessarily accounting, but we've got to track what's going on uh, there. So there's a whole lot to, you know, uh, to juggle when I was younger, I was really good about keeping everything in my head. Um, now yeah. it, it, I mean, it, it, it used to work. I mean, I, I would keep everything on paper too. Um, I, I've gone to pretty much a Mac based system. So things are either in calendar or reminder or notes. Uh, I started using Evernote a little bit, but I, I, um, I think I'm going to stay within the Apple family because I hear the next, uh, OS 10 version in iOS nine is going to put the notes, um, app on steroids to compete with Evernote. 
Um, but I mean, you, you try to, to keep up to speed on everything. The other thing I track, um, you know, and again, it's not so much numbers, it's more, uh, and I guess this is why I majored in communication and not, uh, finance. The, my, I try to, within 24 hours, return all my phone calls and emails. Um, and be, because I think that's, you know, key. Now, I don't always succeed and, you know, but, um, it's not for lack of effort. And, um, you know, cause I think that's, you know, it, it's really not that difficult to do most of the time. Uh, I'd like the unsubscribe button for a lot of these <laughs> things I get to the, yeah. the spam. Sometimes they reappear. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes that's more important than, than the number because people are, you know, it's relationship based. Um, you know, our well, opportunity is time sensitive, right? Exact. Well, yeah. 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 Um, you know, so I, I think there's a, a lot to track. Um, and it's just, you know, it comes back to trying to be detail oriented. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you, you know, you, you give up, you know, a home run or the ball gets by you or goes through your legs when you're the goalie. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're sitting, it always on, reinvigorates yeah, me. you're sitting oh. on the bench and somebody else is playing. Uh, you know, I mean, it, I, I think you try to, you know, you take your lumps, but sometimes you just, you know, you, you still feel bad when you miss something. Uh, and there, there were a couple opportunities within the past year, um, you know, that, uh, you know, there were just misses. And I, you know, I mean, you know, and it was, you know, I think I called somebody back within a, a day or two or I left messages and then they said, well, the reason I didn't call you back is because I got this other person I was talking to. And I'm like, well, do you want to give us another chance? No, I'm okay with what I got, you know, and you just don't know. I mean, some, no. you, sometimes you're just going to lose. I mean, even if you pitched well, you know, you lose kinda, one. Nothing. Do you use any software or how do you, how do you track your manager leads and, and take them from leads uh, to the, clients, to deals, yeah. to transactions? Uh, well, I because we're not we don't do a high volume, um, so it, it's uh, I, I, I guess the trade it's it's pretty much manual based or those apps I described as far as you know what I would call the you know what some people would use Salesforce for some of those contact. I used to use Act back in the day. Oh yeah, and then there was Goldmine. I tried out, and um, I haven't really found a, a good Mac equivalent for it. So I, I put reminders and calendar and, you know, and then I do use some paper. Um, and it, it seems to work. I use a, a loose leaf binder and, you know, I have some color coding and highlights of who I need to go back and, you know, and then some I'll carry to the next day, you know, as far as phone calls or I'll make notes in my calendar. Uh, you know, would that I'm, be like a um, kind of like a Franklin? It's system? similar, but it's it's just an Allen an Allen you know, system. It's an <laughs> it's a night at the improv sometimes because I haven't found something good. When I got you know an iPad, I figured okay, I'm going to get a stylus and write everything on my iPad, and then I no. thought I'd get one of these bamboos. Yeah. And what I found is you know sometimes I mean I I think people find you know even a small iPad like this is sometimes a barrier. And or you're looking at that. So I, I tend when I meet with people, I use a yellow pad and a pen. Um, I, um, you know, then we'll sometimes scan it. Some of them I shred, uh, <laughs> you know, some I'll put in a file. Uh, you know, I mean, it just it may depend. Sometimes I'll have copies of, you know, things. So um, it, it really it, it each deal is different and each person is different. And, um, you know, sometimes you find that uh, you're going to want to keep stuff. Sometimes, you know, you know, this was more of a meet and greet. And, you know, I took some notes, but it's really not something that I, 
you know, a name and phone number I already have in my address book. So, well, I do see you are adopting technology, though. You do have an iPad and was that an iPhone or what? Do you yeah, have? this is the uh, the phablet. The phablet, but <laughs> six plus they call it. There yeah. you go, the six plus. So you so okay. I see. So you're still doing some paper and mostly with the Apple system. Yeah, so. and some sort of. Franklin slash Allen. Yeah, and then um, some of our um, accounting and our mortgage servicing is still Windows based. So we use Parallels uh, and Windows, you know, for the programs that that need that on a business level. But most of my day to day stuff is within the Apple ecosystem. And, you know, it's once you go Mac, you never go back. I've heard that, yeah. and now that I have an iPad, I am fucking disgusted by how well it works in comparison <laughs> to an Android. I wish I would have made the, at least when it comes to the iPad, the Switch, way earlier. It's just way easier to use. Um, well, and even Windows runs better, from my experience, on on a MacBook or, you know, on the why Mac. Why does that not surprise me? Well, I some people say because, you know, it's not using all the other resources, but others is, you know, you perhaps have... Um, I mean, you pay more for the hardware, so it should run better. You should, yeah. They just take more time. So you're a Grizzly veteran. Undoubtedly, there's somebody listening to this right now. I don't know. Maybe they're in high school. Maybe they have a shit job working at a grocery store or whatever. They want to wife, kids, whatever. Or maybe they just failed so many times. They, you know, they're looking to, to do something new. And we never, we don't recommend, but let's say if you were starting from scratch today, because I don't want to say what would you recommend, because we recommend nothing. You go get a lawyer. (laughs) But if you were starting from scratch today, what would Mr. Alan Daniels do? Well, I I don't know if I, there's too much I would do differently. Um, I, you know, would tell someone starting out, as I mentioned already in this podcast numerous times, uh, I would recommend they take the 40 hour pre-licensure class to be not, even if they don't want to become a real estate salesperson, because I think that gives them, you know, the, the basics of, of what the ground rules are. And, um, and then, you know, I, I think try it out, see if you like it. Um, it can be addicting, you know, when you, I mean, they're, what do they call the the type of rush it is uh dopamine or whatever i mean yeah. you know and i think it's the same thing you know a closing you know sometimes even on a small deal you feel the sense of uh, fulfillment that you know you, you something you know that you know happened um just like uh in competition but it's not necessarily that you beat someone it's just that a goal was reached and uh, because you know and it's a mutual goal so there it's some it's fulfilling and so I think that makes it enjoyable in, in that you help someone else and you reach your goal too and all that effort, you know, got to a closing. It's incredibly frustrating sometimes too. Um, but I think, you know, those ups and downs are what makes it somewhat exciting. Um, and I, I think there are some days like a merry-go-round too, you know, roller coaster merry-go-round uh, metaphors. So what would I tell someone to do is I think – you know, learn the ground rules, you know, see if you have any interest in, in, in learning about it. Um, and then, you know, try it out. And whether it's brokering, whether or whether you have some capital invest, I mean, if you don't have the stomach, uh, you know, to, to suffer any loss, you know, then being an investor, you know, maybe is something you're not out cut out for. I talked to a gentleman that had sold uh, a 
you know, a bigger mortgage company um, prior to 2007, um, you know, and it was in the early 2000s. And he said, I think I want to do what you guys are doing now that, you know, he had a nest egg of money. And I said, okay, well, let me tell you about this recent deal. And it was something where made perfect sense when we invested in the deal. And then all these things that no one would have predicted happened. And um, it was a property that had a, a decent value. And then uh, the the marriage dissolved, so half the income disappeared. Mm. And then uh, the spouse that stayed, it would happen to be the husband that stayed in the house, the wife moved up north, um, I guess got lonely and invite, you know, had a, a female companion come over and some of her friends and whether they were too loud or whether there were things going on at this uh, impromptu party or whatever, uh, it got raided. And um, so he and everyone else got hauled off to the Oakland County Jail or whether it was a lockup or whatever. And the police left the door open and building and safety drove by the next business day and saw that it was open to trespass and tagged the property. And then they called sanitation and unbeknownst to me, in the backyard, the guy sort of fixed on in fixed up engines and I mean it was handy, just like someone might in a garage, but seeing as though they were in the garage, or, I'm sorry, in the yard, it was fenced with a you know solid wood fence. Um so you couldn't see which um you know, and the neighbors weren't complaining, but since building and safety had been there, they called sanitation to haul everything away to the dump. And of course, this they did it overtime and has put that on as a special assessment on the property. So now, um, our collateral went from being something up to code that was a performing loan to within before the next payment was due was now a loan that. I now found out isn't going to perform and the collateral is worth about half of what it was because in order to get the property, I learned this, uh, up to code, it requires a team inspection. And even though it was up to code when it was built, maybe in 1952, codes have changed. So everything wow. needed to be changed. So plumbing, electrical, furnace, oh, you yeah. know, everything. So the market for that house... And then, you know, also you got a big assessment, which has priority over our lien because it's government assessment. Um, and so I told this other gentleman about this deal. He says, he says, maybe I'm not cut out for that. Yeah. I mean, because here we did everything right, um, but it was the circumstances that just caused the deal, you know, to, to not work out great. Now, we turned a little bit, you know, the lemon into lemonade or we were able to salvage it a little bit. Um, in that the, the husband, you know, realized the predicament he was in and he says, I'm willing to sign off. I said, well, what about your ex? Well, she didn't live here anymore anyway. I said, well, yeah, but it's going to take a long time to go through the process. And by then I was worried they were going to tear down the house. Um, and so I got, he, he got, I got a phone number somehow, maybe from him or lawyers or whoever for the ex-wife. And she said, as long as he signed first, she would sign off. Yeah, she and didn't want him. She didn't, yeah, she didn't want him ending yeah. up with it. So we were able, Fair enough, you know, right? and then, but we had to have the attorney, I think, file a, um, an injunction or something to keep the city from tearing it down. And I don't know if we had to file a bond or something, but I think, you know, for, I mean, we were a good citizen. I mean, we wanted, you know, we wanted it to, you know, I mean, we were 
to be nice. I mean, we didn't want the neighbors complaining or anything, but we couldn't do anything until we had permission to enter the house and had title. So we ended up selling it to a rehabber in the area, hint, hint. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, we came out not as good as we would have thought, but uh, it worked out, you know, as, as probably the best it could under the circumstances. But again, you just can't predict. And so you have to sort of realize that, you know, there's new things that can happen and, you know, you just... Uh, after you're done crying about it or swearing or whatever, you have to figure out, okay, now what do I do? And, you know, that's just part of business. Okay, do I have to learn something new or, you know, about the law or what can go or how to dig out of this? Um, but there's also sometimes opportunities where creativity can come in too. A friend of mine who I met, we bought a land contract from him. He's a real estate broker. Uh, uh, we developed a friendship and we ended up uh, forming an LLC uh, before he retired from real estate. But we invested in real estate together. We bought a property in St. Clair County when uh, land could still be developed. There was market. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we cut it. We were able to do a land division uh, into four parcels. And while we were in the process of waiting for our new tax IDs from the uh, county assessor, we were contacted by a natural gas company that they wanted to buy our underground storage rights to store natural gas. And we pretty much knew going into the deal that we were going to be able to split the property horizontally. We had no idea we could split it vertically. Oh. So it was like bonus round or, you know, it wasn't quite big enough to win the lottery. But I mean, here was something in the 40 hour class, I learned about subsurface rights and air rights and things like that. But I mean, here was, you know, interesting. I mean, somebody cold calls us, you know, would you like to sell your underground rights? I'm like, yeah, we're going to sell this. I mean, as long as it's way below where a basement would go, yeah, <laughs> you, know, you can, you can have all the way down to the core or the people in China <laughs> listening or Australia, we didn't sell that far. Yeah. Um, you know, so once in a while you, you get lucky and, and, but you know, you learn and it's funny because we're like, we need a lawyer to negotiate with this gas company. So, you know, friend of a friend or attorney to attorney, we get a referral for an attorney and he says, oh yeah, I specialize in this type of thing. Tell me about it. He says, I can't say anymore. I said, why is that? He says, cause I'm representing the other side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as a matter of fact, we, you know, we got another re, uh, attorney and it turns out, I mean, they, they, it ends up, you know, there aren't a whole lot of attorneys that's specialize in that. And, you know, it, it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, prosecutors and defense attorneys, I mean, or bankruptcy creditors, attorneys, debtors, attorneys, they're always dealing with each other. They, they know each other's tricks. They, you know, so it worked out well, we found another attorney and, you know, the deal got made relatively easily because, you know, they're, they're always making deals with each other. And they also know they have a fiduciary duty for the client. They respect that. So it worked out really well for both sides. Okay. So, so, can you handle loss and also just kind of always be open to the opportunity because you never know an opportunity is going to come knocking. Yeah. And if you don't take a risk, necessarily, you don't always get the opportunity. So. I, yeah. And I think, you know, you have to, um, I think, you know, hedge is a word that's got a bad connotation, but you, you know, you also, uh, you have to be careful not to bet the farm. Um, you know, I, my, my dad has friends that are older than him and, uh, they joke, you know, that they don't even buy green bananas anymore. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> that's long-term investing, you know, so you have to look at where you are. I that's mean, hilarious. yeah. So, um, uh, you know, so you look at the, you know, situation. I mean, I, right now, uh, my, 
you know, where am I? Well, I, I probably am a little less active personally. Why? Well, because I've got, you know, tuition and, and housing and, you know, now I still need to earn a living, but, you know, I, I've got, you know, a certain amount in, in reserve that that money is going to stay at a, at a return that I'm almost, you know, like nothing. I mean, it's, it's not negative, but I mean, it's, you know, it's an FDIC insured account. So why? Because that's, you know, allocated towards a specific purpose. Don't bet the farm. Yeah. So don't bet the farm, but, you know, or, you know, or, you know, figure out your, your appetite. Um, like the deal you started out with earlier, that size, um, you know, when, when I would, you know, it still might be, you know, something I would, would, uh, buy for myself, but my, you know, I remember, you know, investing, you know, uh, my, you know, it was all for my dad. And then, you know, after about a year and a half, uh, there was something that, you know, came in, it was a land contract and, um, you know, it was small enough and I had saved enough. And I remember sort of sheepishly going in my dad, it's like, I'd like to buy it. And, um, you know, and it was the first one I actually did for myself. And I, you know, I remember, you know, um, you know, that, it, you know, I, 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 this is G-rated, but I mean, I, you know, did I have the cojones for that? That's you know, right. I'll you know, say yeah, I mean, balls. it's, yeah. You have the appetite for risk. Yeah. So, but I, you know, I, it was, it was a smaller deal and, and I felt that, you know, even if they didn't pay and I, you know, but, um, you know, that I could handle it, but I also, you know, it, it was different. Um, even, you know, though I was really, really careful, but I think, you know, I, I, it wasn't that I was, um, you know, as a risk, you know, with the percentage of my net worth at that time, it was still pretty high. Yeah, you know, at some point you do have to. Uh, yeah, so right? I, so I think someone, you know, um, you know, you have to look at it from where you are in life. Like my my dad, um, you know, he 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 was looking. Okay, well, if I, you know, and this probably before I came on board, if something happens and you know I'm doing trying developing land and doing this and doesn't work, well, I can always fix teeth. You know, he, I mean, so he had a marketable skill. So the question is, you know, before someone quits their day job, so to speak, is, you know, what's plan B? Now, for me, I don't really know what plan B is. I mean, and that's somewhat worrisome. But I think, you know, where I, I regained some confidence through those years is, um, you know, I've got the real estate knowledge. Fortunately, we've got, you know, the capital um, and we, it's really comes back to basics, finding those niche, you know, we can't do what we used to do because that door is closed and we don't want to be Al Capone. No. We'd rather be Stroh's. Um, but it's a matter of putting on your thinking cap and what can you do with the skill set you have? And, um, you know, so you try to remain positive. Um, and then you don't want to do deals just cause they're deals either. You don't want to lower your standards. And that was some maintaining that discipline, especially during that downturn required, um, you know, some real, it w wasn't easy. Um, not that I would have listened, but where were you in 2006, sir? I wouldn't have listened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you want to, you know, you want to, you know, if it doesn't make sense, I mean, don't do it just because you haven't had a deal for a while. Um, so that's where, you know, you you try to stick to the plan the best you can. And, you know, we've all made mistakes and, you know, and I think that's just part of learning too. So you try to take a lesson from it and not to make the same one again. Well, I have so many more questions that I'd like to ask, but I think, I think I'm going to end it. But 
I'm going to end it, and we got to answer uh, Brent's and, and uh, Steve's. Ah, we do. So let's let's ask that. Okay. Although they could be really long. And before we do that, though, can in a couple months can we come back and do this again? I have a really good time talking. Should we to come you. back tomorrow? No, yeah. okay. <laughs> I have a really good time talking. Okay. To you. So, but we should. Um, all right. So, Mr. Brent Maxwell, this is from the Facebook. Okay. I posted yesterday to the the Facebook. The Facebook. Um, for those of you listening, go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Um, this is where I will post who the speaker is going to be and if you have any questions for him and all that. So Mr. Brent Maxwell, he asked a question. I want to provide conforming in-house financing to qualified buyers. How can I provide personal residence loans to people without a bunch of red tape? Or... How can I minimize the red tape? Last question. What structure is best? I think I already know the answer to this question. So. Well, I, th- I think it, it's going to be very, very difficult for him to do that. Uh, the, the new rules, you know, the first question is, does he own a crystal ball, <laughs> you know, to <laughs> predict? I mean, uh, you know, yet, I mean, I've got a two-hour presentation just on Dodd-Frank uh, ability to repay itself. Maybe not two hours, might be three. Yeah. No, but I, I think in this situation, if you go down to the basics, the first thing he's going to need is two licenses. In Michigan, you're going to need to be licensed as a mortgage loan originator. Um, and that's an individual license that requires a 20-hour course, uh, fingerprinting, criminal background check, passing a test, and uh, and then you'll need a sponsor. In this case, I'm assuming he wants to become his own sponsor, which means his entity or himself would need to be licensed uh, under the Mortgage Broker Lender Servicers Licensing Act, where they do a character background check, character and fitness test, experience test, which is more subjective, where they actually, you know, would you know look at your resume rather than and um then um make sure that, yesterday you weren't delivering yeah, newspapers. Yeah, or, exactly. That you you know that you're you know you can you're worthy of the public trust. Uh similar to like they would do for bank officers. Um you know I know others would disagree what do they do with bank officers. <laughs> but in any event, um you know and then you're going to need a bond um, which to service mortgages, uh, it's $125,000 bond. So the bonding company is going to need to know that you've got, you know, assets in excess of that, um, because you're, you know, the bond doesn't just come out of thin air and then you pay a premium for the bond. It's usually a dollar, a thousand. After you've been around a while, you might be able to shop and get a bit, little better rate. Uh, the license fee, you know, is, is over a thousand dollars now. The background check or what they call, I think it's back. I don't remember exactly what they call it, but it's a four hundred and fifty dollars oh investigation fee, uh, non refundable, and um, you know, and then there's an activity fee. So if you're successful, you're paying a certain amount uh, up to a maximum of about five thousand a year for that license. Um, individual license, I think, is two fifty or three fifty, and then you need a bond for that too. So the licenses is going to be the first challenge, and then. You know, you're you're going to need to know the rules, and the rules are essentially that qualified buyers. He's saying here, um, if they're qualified, they can already go to the bank. So, w- what benefit is this to you? Um, yeah, because, Brad, this might be a follow-up <laughs> question. I mean, yeah, are we talking conforming, non-conforming? Yeah, or I imagine he's. I'm going to take a. So I'm going to guess. I'm going to wild ass guess. I'm not saying this is what Mr. Brent Maxwell is going to do. I know he operates and owns and manages a significant amount of property in the city of Detroit, and financing is difficult, if not impossible, 
although that may change with new stupid government programs. He probably would like to finance some of these houses um, and use investor money to do it. So yeah, well, I, I, think, I have a feeling I know what you think. Well, about he's this. he's going to have to have the license structure. Uh, you know, first of all, to do it legally, because otherwise he's going to get shut down, <laughs> you know. And then, um, you know, the, the challenge is going to be is that um, the government requires now that the lender make a determ- determination of uh, the borrower's ability to repay. Now, there is a safe harbor for Fannie Mae, FHA, Freddie Mac, you know, approved loans. There's also what's called a qualified mortgage, um, and I don't have it, all the ingredients in front of me, but it's got to be fully amortized is one thing, and then also that the points and fees are, um, in most cases, below 3%. Um, for smaller loans, it might be a dollar amount, but it's still pre- pretty small, and it's, you know, with by the time you figure appraisal, title, work, closing fee, you're going to hit, you know, that pretty easily or, go, or exceed it. Um, and then, you know, the interest rate cannot be more than uh, a certain, you know, a couple of ticks over what they call the average prime offered rate, which is essentially like the Freddie Mac rate. So it's going to have to be low cost, you know, or low yield. So the investors may not be interested in it. Um, also, it's going to have to be fully amortizing, which on a small loan amount may not be hard to do. You know, maybe they could get it so eight, 10 years would fully amortize. But um, otherwise, if they're in what they call a non-qualified mortgage, um, then anytime someone didn't pay and you went to enforce that default, uh, the borrower could challenge that by saying, I didn't, you, you didn't do a proper job of determining my repayment ability. Therefore, um, you can't foreclose on me. And there's no statute of limitations to that defense. So it's like a poison pill. I have to pause here and just say what a fucking sad state of affairs it is that somebody else has to determine what you can and can't afford. And you, as the consumer, can basically push your responsibility onto a business. I do not agree with that. And I think that's sad. I just wanted to say that. So, But that's sobering, too. Because if it's your money on the line and a judge or a jury, I'm not sure who would, says, you know what, Mr. Maxwell, you should have known that his car was five years old. I think that was the example you used it already. I'm trying to remember the exact example. Huh. It was a six-year-old car. You should anticipate it. someday during the life of the loan, they would have an unexpected expense. The transmission would go out. Or they'd need a new roof. Or- yeah, and you did not take that into consideration, you evil, greedy mortgage company. Yeah, well, and there's no case law in this. See, if you draw a parallel to the tax code, um, you know, there, that's been around for a hundred years. So there have been people that challenge provisions in tax court or, you know, federal court or even up to the Supreme Court over the years. And there's been decisions as far as, you know, where the boundary is of what you can do. I mean, some of it came from the regulator through an interpretation or some of it came from, you know, a, a case and, you know, case at an appeals court level. Well, the Dodd-Frank is so new that there there's no case law yet. So unless, you know, you know, in this case, we're using Brent's name already. So, uh, yeah. you know, so... Uh, Allegedly. Yeah. Okay. Probably doing that. Uh, you know, no, I think it's a question he put forth just yeah. so the topic would be brought up, not yeah. that he's thinking of doing it. It's all hypothetical. All hypothetical. Um, but in any event, Thank you, the... Brent. the um, 
you know, he'd have to have the thick enough skin or the cojones uh, to want to be that test case. And if you're using investor money, there, there's, you know, another risk is that those investors could say, you know, you know, not, you know, they didn't, you didn't tell them that there was all this risk. And, you know, yes, it was in the prospectus, but that was a thick document. And, um, you know, I, you know, so you, you could have a lot of, you know, you could have a regulator uh, saying, because you now have a license to be able to do it. So you violated, you know, it's a license violation and fines and possible imprisonment for, you know, violating the law and, you know, and having your license taken away, obviously, not doing things the way you're supposed to. Um, and then there's a risk, you know, that the consumer, you know, on the loan itself, you know, could impair your ability to collect by asserting their rights. Um, and then the investor where you're getting the money could also come at you with darts. Um, and then bear in mind the definition, if, and you could say, well, I'm just not going to bother to get a license. I'm over in this corner of the state where they never come. And, um, you know, but, but keep in mind that the definition under, um, I know one of the laws, if not both of them, a licensee is someone who is licensed or should be licensed under this act. So they've got you coming and going in, in that way. And and I think it's, you know, it's a cat and mouse because there were people trying to stay, say, well, I wasn't licensed. You don't have authority. You know, they, they've defined license in such a way that, um, you know, it's it. So Everyone. it comes back to following the rules. If if anyone out there, you know, I mean, if, you know, I mean, there's other people that may have a different interpretation through their attorney um, and may have a different risk tolerance, just like on a deal, they may have a different compliance risk tolerance. And maybe you might see some people doing that. They may say, well, if I'm ever challenged, I just won't foreclose. I'll walk away. I don't see how that covers them on the regulatory violation end because they still made a loan yeah. without you could but, still potentially go to jail yeah you're or, to take a yeah or you're or not. exactly yeah. so so there's there's some risk um you know or um you know i i don't you know depending on you know i, I mean i i mean habitat for humanity is still around of course there are zero interest loans um so i i think he would want a better yield than zero i would hope um, so but uh, I imagine, you know, the, the, there, there might be a markup, even though Habitat gets donated labor and perhaps some donated materials, I'm assuming they have some overhead and they're, they're, they've, although possibly it's all from donations, but, you know, I don't know if on the sale of the house there, you know, there is a little bit of, uh, of overage between what the supplies cost them and the labor cost them and their overhead, you know, in order to sustain, to sustain themselves. I mean, even nonprofits need revenue yeah, over need expenses. Pay. Yeah. They still need food. Yeah. Right? When they still have to pay, you yeah. know, the people that their accountants and lawyers. So it, it's possible that, um, you know, there may be a way, uh, you know, to, to, to meet that business plan. But I think for the purpose of a podcast, I can't, uh, no. you know, it's not legal advice. So no, probably not. You know what? In 10 years, you're probably going to have to, Drive to your client's house and hug them before they go to sleep every night. Thanks, Congress. All right, so we also have a question from Mr. Steve Lundell, although I think it's a leading question. Isn't that what they call a leading question? Yeah. Why is Dodd-Frank a failure, and will they repeal slash replace it? I think that is what you call a leading question, Steve. I think yeah. what he meant to say is, do you think that Dodd-Frank would be... A failure, and do you think they will repeal and or replace it if and when it is a failure? I think some of it is well intentioned, um, and I think 
Um, you know, it, I think it, 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 it's an overreaction. And, and I think, you know, like I talked about the population of loan originators being cleansed. So now you've got, you've cleaned up the population and you now have a, uh, an educated non-criminal, um, it's always good. Yeah. <laughs> Populist, you know, and loan origination. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's basic. We probably should have started with that. Well, you know, we but, but they've been tested, educated, and, you know, and you got rid of the fraudsters. So, you know, that's a pretty good. So now that you've got, you know, an educated sales force, um, you know, the idea is the idea of limiting the products or censoring the products that can be offered to the public a good idea. Well, maybe if you, you know, if you had an uneducated sales force, then you limit the choices. But, you know, if you use a parallel with the securities market where there's all sorts of securities products, but those offering securities are educated and and non-felon, you know, <laughs> you know, to enter. And, but they have a standard. It's somewhat subjective, but it's called suitability. And so, but they can offer any products. But if, if they... Uh, I won't say green bananas, but if they offered a 40-year zero coupon bond to a 99-year-old, that probably would not be a suitable uh, investment product. So I think there is a way of regulating a profession without censoring the products that could be offered. So uh, am I saying that anyone should get a no-doc loan? No, but I mean, does uh, someone with, you know, uh, a net worth of, of this, that, and the other that has their income tax return has, you know, uh, 99 K-1s. Should they have to, you know, get the equivalent of a colonoscopy to get a $30,000 mortgage on one property, um, you know, that's, you know, at a 10% loan to value, you know, which is just, uh, you know, like the guest house, or yeah. something, you know, but, but meanwhile, so I think it's an overreaction there. Um, hold on. So for those listening, this is definitely um, this part is definitely for America only. So when he, and I'll have him explain it, too. So when he's talking about with, with K-1s is right now there is a definite bias towards someone who has W-2 income and not only W-2 income, but what we call a W-2 tax return and K-1, if we Go ahead. K one income. Well, it, it it it's you're in multiple partnerships and other investments, so you're, you know, you may you may be self employed or you have a lot of investment in, in investment income. So it's a lot. It's a, just more cumbersome for someone to qualify It'll for a conventional loan in a box, right? Exactly. This is a minority of the population it, as well. Yeah, it it it's uh you know might be a needle in a haystack, but it this one size fits all. Um, underwriting by regulation rather than common sense or you know it is is definitely limiting opportunities for for people so i i think you know there but i think the the idea um of you know that things were too loose i mean i i think you know there were abuses but i think you know there could have been certain tweaks to existing law i'm gonna put your feet to the fire here though do you think it will be a failure and or do you think they will repeal and or improve it? I think it'll be uh, revised down the road. I don't think it'll be repealed um, because I think even if a majority of both chambers, you know, both houses of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, vote to repeal it, which I don't think they will. But if they did, I think the president would veto it because there's two signature pieces of 
legislation that came out of President Obama's presidency so far, which one is the Affordable Care Act and the other is um, the financial reform, Dodd-Frank Act. So I, I don't think repealing is something that, um, you know, you know, will be done while he holds the veto pen. So it's possible down the road with, you know, if there were, you know, well, there will be a new president, but depending on who that is, you know, that could be repealed in the future. But I think the the public, those of us in real estate and mortgage, we sort of are aware of this. But if you were to poll the public, most of them would be either neutral or in favor of Dodd-Frank and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because of, you know, they, they what they see it as somebody fighting for the little guy. They don't yeah. know the nuances. The Elizabeth Warrens of the world would line up pictures of kittens being thrown off bridges into the alligators' mouths and say, that's what you're doing, you know, so. Yeah, no, they don't look at, um, you know, the, the opportunity. But I think, um, you know, to be um, fair, you know, to the proponents of, of it, I mean, you can look at a community just north of here, Pontiac, where there were some abuses uh, that included seller financing uh, that led to the meltdown. You had, um, and I won't name any names, but uh, you had, you know, uh, in, investors buying, um, we'll call them distressed properties, uh, doing very minor repairs, selling them on, on low down you know, land contracts like a, a used car model where, you know, they just did some cosmetic work, maybe, you know, $1,000 down and, you know, they bought a house maybe for $5,000 and then sold it for 19000 with 1900 down and, you know, 450 a month. And then they would, an appraiser looking at those sales, if they didn't look at the type of financing involved, you know, if, and you're in a small community, uh, the comps are all then went from what five or seven thousand dollars to twenty yeah. overnight, yeah. and then you know during the the I think note, you meant to say Detroit. <laughs> well, no, well, well, no. I mean, we're yeah. geographically we're very close yeah. to Pontiac, and it was a, a smaller community to manipulate. But the same thing went on in different areas of the country. So you know, and then if you lay you know subprime no doc mortgages. Um, with, you know, fraudulent appraisals on top of that, you then, within a couple of uh, rounds of the revolution or, or recycling this type thing, or re uh, what is it, uh, lather, rinse, repeat, you know, you now have an $80,000 appraisal. And what was really a house of cards, it's still, you know, all on top of a $7,000 house. And then the it all fell down. So, now, did they go too far in saying, you know, with the seller financing regulations of really only having exemptions? The one true exemption is just for one in any 12-month period because the one with three in any 12-month period is, you know, it's pretty hard. You've still got to meet that ability to pay standard. Um, you know, is that too far? Yeah. I mean, somewhere in the middle between, you know, unlimited. Well, Michigan had a rule of 10 that was sort of ignored. Um, but... <laughs> But, you know, somewhere a little bigger, you know, maybe five would have been a better number than one um, because you're, I don't think you're going to ruin a community with five. Um, but it might help a residential landlord that wanted to retire and sell properties to his tenant or when they died, it would allow the surviving spouse to, to do that. Or like uh, oh. you've had a property for 27 and a half years, you're done depreciating, but if you sell it, you're going to have a... A big tax bill. Yeah, have a big tax bill. All right, hold on. Okay. We're going to wrap up. Here yeah, it's sick. I got to be home by seven. Okay.
All right, sorry about that. The podcast went on ongoing, but here we are. We're now on the third video. Machine. We're on the home stretch. Yeah, we're, we're on the home stretch. We're, we're going to need a shave. Up. Yeah. Um, so, well, first I want to come back, and I know you already said yes. I'll, I'll see if I book you again. I, I have so many questions I actually didn't ask, and that's why I was afraid of. But I think we're already over three hours, which oh, is kind of amazing. Which is kind of crazy. It, it is a little too long. I just got to talking. Um, so for, for everyone. You, I highly recommend um, he uh, contacting Mr. Alan Daniels. I'm going to put all this in the show notes too, but you can give him a ring on his office phone. This is obviously in Michigan, so if you're on the global, all that. But go ahead and give him a call at his office, 248-335-6166, 248-335-6166. You can also send an email, Alan, A-L-L-A-N, Daniels, D-A-N-I-E-L-S, at gmail.com. Or you can go to his blog at cashforlandcontracts.com, and that's cash, the number four, landcontracts.com. I'll also put all this in the show notes. And this is our first podcast. Uh, Renegade Detroit Investors also has a meeting. We meet um, the first Tuesday every month. Go to Facebook dot com forward slash Detroit Investor Club, Detroit Investment Club, um, or you can go and search us on Meetup. Go ahead and give me a follow on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess, or you can just go to RenegadeDetroit.com. Alan, always a pleasure. Thank My you. pleasure too. You should have had the video pointing at you for yeah, the last no, no, part. No, yeah. right there. I, I highly recommend Do the he, selfie. He comes out. He goes to Occasionally he comes to RDI, Oakland, Rio, all that. Um, he does a lot of continuing education, as he mentioned before. So if you're a realtor or a real estate agent and you see him pop up locally, I do highly recommend. And for, for those of you we didn't actually get to talking too much, we have to come back and talk about Dodd-Frank and all that. But sure. I will include the video uh, when he came to RDI. Okay. That yeah. Now, that original one, bear in mind, that was before the final rules that were issued. Dated. So yep. there is some uh, things that, uh, you know, were, were finalized a little different than that. But it gives you a flavor of it. So uh, thanks so much, yeah, uh, Jeremy. It was yeah. great to have you awesome. here. And uh, we'll look forward to doing it again. Yeah, we'll be back. And uh, thank you for your time. And for everyone, certainly give him a call. And if you can do me, everyone, do me a favor. So... Pull open your, if you enjoyed this this podcast, go ahead and open up your whatever email client you're using. Type in Alan, A-L-L-A-N, Daniels, D-A-N-I-E-L-S at gmail.com and say, Mr. Alan Daniels, you should start a podcast. Okay. Because I've been asking this man to start a podcast for two years. All right, so far, bro. he's not listening to me. But maybe it's, if, if this really takes off in the entire world, um, uh, you could see this. Uh, he sh- I think he should. Yeah, Sounds so many stories. I'll have to get a diehard battery or a generator. Yeah, though, yeah. For the video. Well, I think you just get a better battery. But okay. in the meantime, until we meet again, sir, thank you very much. Thank you for letting me come out, and um, thanks for sharing your time with me, sir. Thank you. All right. All right. I thought that went well. It was excellent. I had a great time. Well, that was good. It went yeah. by faster than. Uh, oh, it always does. It always yeah. does. I was like, I don't want to put a limit on it.